0: This episode, Justice League America number 44 and Justice League Europe number 20, cover dated November 1990. And welcome to the 44th episode of Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. My name's Eerdemal Shag, and I'm your host. But I'm not flying solo, folks. Every episode, we feature two different guest hosts, and we'll chat with my second co-host in just a little bit. But for now, my first co-host today is a fellow founding member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Yes, one of the alums, folks. In fact, this is the only person on the network who has ever punched me, and Rob is terribly jealous.
1: Hey, I also punched Rob, but you know, you all are a very ugh, bunch. So there you go. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I think you guys have already guessed my guest is both the brains and the beauty of the supermates podcasting duo folks please help me welcome mrs cindy franklin welcome to the new york embassy cindy thanks for being here how you doing
1: doing great doing great getting things rolling along so all good stuff i'm glad to be
0: here yeah, this is the first time you and i have ever gotten a chance to podcast without your obnoxious ball and chain so this is exciting
1: i, I know i know shh don't tell you know it
0: will just be a secret he already commented earlier he walked by and decided he had to chime in on the conversation god
1: i know right you know but but he is kind of cute, and I'm going to keep him. So, you know, after you know, almost 30 years, you know, I've got him the way I want him. So
0: <laughs> I was just looking forward to a little alone time for you and I, Cindy. That's all.
1: <laughs> oh, my. We might have to talk about that one. <laughs>
0: <So>. <laughs> Before this turns into the JLI After Dark podcast, let's go ahead and get into our sponsors, folks. Uh, this episode of the JLI podcast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping for orders of $50. Or more. Now, each episode we select a collected edition to discuss from the uh, In Stock Trades Library usually ties into that month's issue in some way or shape or whatever. Uh, I picked this time in New Gods Book One Bloodlines trade paperback. This collects the 1990s New Gods series by like Jim Starlin, Mark Avenir, Paris Collins. It collects the first 14 issues of that 80s series that kind of launched out of Cosmic Odyssey. It's a lot of fun. I had never read it until recently and I really enjoyed this one. So, folks, you can get it over again on In Stock Trades, full color, normally it goes. For $34.99, but on Instock Trades, it's 42% off. So it only costs $20.29. Now, Cindy, no pressure here, but like when your husband was on the show, he brought an Instock Trades pick. Did you happen to bring one? Because if not, it's going to be really embarrassing around the dinner table tonight.
1: It's all good. Um, I'm also gonna I'm gonna rep one of my favorite artists, Ramona Freden. Um they they have the hardcover book, The Art of Ramona Freden, um, normally $29.99, 30% off for $20.99. Ramona Freyden is a Wonderful example of a female artist who has left her mark on the comic book world. She is 95, almost 96. Um, we are very, very lucky for the trailblazing that she did. This book gives you an insight into how she broke into the comic book industry, why she broke into the comic book industry, that history. It is a wonderful book. Christopher got it for me for, um, I believe, my birthday. And I mean, I have read that sucker cover to cover. So
0: she is a Wonderful, wonderful lady. I got a chance to meet her at the Baltimore Comic Con, and I had her sign because um, I don't own anything by her. Because uh, oh, all- really? Yeah, I don't. So I, I got her to sign a uh, article that was written about her by Mark mm-hmm. Wade. And she's like, oh, wow. Okay. And she's like, can I borrow this? Can I read this article? So she, she so I actually have a photo of Ramona Frayden reading my comic book um, that, of this article by Mark Wade. So then I took it over to Mark Wade and got him to sign it. And he's like, Ramona signed this? I'm like, yeah. And he's like, God, what did I write about her? It's been so many years. Oh, so. gosh. <laughs> it was actually in, a, in an Aquaman comic. So no, he was very complimentary. It all worked out well.
1: <laughs> oh, good. Good, good, good. But, you know, um, recently I have a uh, Mira head sketch. I have Ooh. a Wonder Woman head sketch. And then for Chris's birthday, I actually just bought him a Batman sketch where it is him looking out at the city with the bat signal coming up. And each one of those is personalized, like Christopher says for Christopher, and then mine say to Cindy. And I mean, you know, it's a really something that I'm glad that we have. And we have those in our living room. So
0: That is awesome. That's incredible. And her art today is just as good as it was 50 years ago. It's unbelievable. Yes,
1: yes. And you can actually still buy those. There's, um, I believe it's Catskill Comics mm-hmm. is where you can find a lot and she does commission work as well but then occasionally she will put up these small cards and I believe they're like maybe eight by eight Mm -hmm. and they're 80 bucks a piece and they're absolutely fabulous so totally worth it
0: absolutely she's a she's a true treasure for the comic industry without a doubt folks if you want to get that Ramona Fraden book or the new gods book please head over to our sponsor instocktrades.com now also this episode is sponsored by you folks at home with your patreon support so thank you so much to everyone who supports us over at patreon.com because running the Fire and Water Podcast Network so many shows and online hosting and Cindy's Gambling Dead and all these things it really adds up. And a while back we realized we needed some help with some expenses so we launched the Patreon and you folks really stepped up. So if you're enjoying the JLI Podcast and uh, you wish to support it, please visit patreon.com slash fwpodcast and in certain tiers you'll get mentioned on your show of choice. Just like these folks who asked to be recognized on the JLI Podcast. So our thanks to Bill Beer, Chris Lewis, David Gutierrez, DC Dave, Devin Clancy, George Van Note, Gord Tolton, John Ross Haynes, Kevin Wetter, Mark Baker-Wright, Martin Gray, Matt Ev, Maxwell Traver, Michael Crouch, Mike Zemkowski, Patrick McMullen, Roger Priebe, Rudy Gustillo, Sean Ross, and Tim Price. Again, folks, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. All right, folks, so we want you to join in on the conversation. Please go out on the social media, use our hashtag FWPodcast. You can tag us at JLI Podcast because it is always, always, always about building a community of online JLI fans around the show. And speaking of JLI fans, this is where we got to ask Cindy, what is your origin with the JLI? How did you find the book? Uh, you know, Did you read it growing up? Is it your first exposure? Why don't you let us know how you came to know the JLI?
1: Okay, so my mother worked at Begley Drugstore when, from the time I was about maybe three or four years old, this later became Rite Aid Drug. It is now Walgreens. So a lot of times I would go out to Begley's um, when I was waiting for my dad to get off work or what have you, and they had the comic books in the back corner of the store, which was also in eyesight of the pharmacy. So the pharmacist was able to keep an eye on me while my mom was working up front. So I spent a many, many hours sitting on the floor devouring any and all reading material they had and i love the irreverent humor in justice league Ooh. and chris's mom actually worked at our local hallmark which was only about maybe four or five stores down from um begley drug i don't know how we never bumped into each other because apparently his mother came down there and bought him every comic book going because chris <laughs> was a spoiled little snot and got everything
0: he still is by the way i know i know
1: we actually didn't meet until we were up in high school and the funny story about this is I don't remember meeting him the first time (laughs) I don't I still don't and he's described it to me I used to hang out at the library I'd get off the bus you know at three o'clock and then my dad got off at 4 30 and I would stay at the library for hour hour and a half my dad would pick me up because I lived way out in the county and so they didn't want me to go home to an empty house so I would go to the library and hang out apparently this everybody knew where I hung out after school and his buddy decided he wanted to come and Chris came as his wingman (laughs) and um, apparently his buddy was hitting on me I wanted nothing to do with him and I shot him down which Chris thinks is hilarious because not because I forgot him but because this guy was a player and he got all all the action all the tail back in high school and I would have none of him and Chris was very he was very happy that I shot his
0: (laughs) (laughs) Sydney Franklin knowing how to put men in their place since high school. Perfect. Oh, yeah.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. Not unlike the prom time that I beat up my date. So, you know.
0: Oh, my gosh. Oh,
1: yeah. <laughs> He got fresh, tried to go down the front of my dress, he managed to meet the side of the door of the car. Oh my
0: gosh. Wow. Oh,
1: yeah. So you,
0: know. <laughs> you could have taught Marty McFly's mom a few tricks.
1: <laughs> exactly. So you know, and this this prom date was not Christopher. This was before him, before him. Chris was always a very nice gentleman, or it was very consensual what we did. So um
0: <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we're either in marriage counseling or like the to the tell all story of the Franklin household. One or the other. I'm not sure which
1: Hey, when you've been together since you were, you know, sixteen years old, there's going to be a lot of history there. So,
0: folks, I have spent uh, several meals together with the Franklin family, and they are just as adorable in person and loving as you would imagine they are. Until City starts punching people, but uh, up to that point, you know,
1: it's all with you know due reason. I'm just one of those people that if you're going to start something, by golly, I'm going to finish it. (laughs) That comes from my daddy. So. My daddy always told me, "Don't you start shit, but by God, you finish it." So, <laughs>
2: that is and good I'm advice. raising my
1: daughter. I'm raising my daughter the same way. I want my daughter to be polite and be a lady, but I also want her to be able to punch your ass in the throat if you mess with her. So.
0: <laughs> you know, our daughters uh, spent the afternoon together. I guess I should have warned my daughter in advance to watch out. <laughs> I'm glad they got along. Woof, that was a, that was a close call. I guess. <laughs>
1: Well, All right, she so, is very sweet. So,
0: your daughter's amazing, and so is your son. Your whole family's wonderful. Well, your husband, I don't know, the jury's still out on that. But the rest of it I, the, the family's wonderful.
1: Well, you know, you know. I've heard that your your daughter is just a delight, and so she can't wait to see Danny can't wait to see her again. So that's our subtle hint to you.
0: Uh, well, that needs to happen. You guys need to get down here for another Florida vacation and we'll catch up. That'd be the quickest way to make that happen.
1: I know, I know. We're we're working on it. We're working on it.
0: Darn pandemic. All right. I know, I know. Folks, well, let's get into this. This is Justice League America number Forty-four by DC Comics, cover dated November nineteen ninety, was on the shelf September eleventh nineteen ninety. Cover price is one dollar for shiny quarters. And oh cover- my gosh! I know. Could you imagine <laughs> buying a comic for a dollar? is insane. And <laughs> we thought that was high back then. Uh, cover is by Adam Hughes and Carl Story. Now, City, do you want to describe the cover for us? Sure.
1: Um, my first thought was tortellini, like the pasta. I mean, you know, maybe that means it's going to be a tasty issue, pun intended. So, yeah. You know. Seeing Guy Gardner knocked out is so satisfying. Oh, my gosh. I mean, he's just one of those guys that you're just like, let me just beat the tar out of you and it'll make me happy. Um, Now, the thing about it is fire is shown. She's, you know, in in the bottom left-hand corner. And let me tell you, if you're laying out like that, your boobs are not perky like that unless you've had some work done. (laughs) And suckers are fake.
0: Bless her for having that work done. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
1: Or she's got one heck of a corset on. So, you know, it's all good. Now, and you do did have to look and figure out who was in the bottom left. I'm like, what What do we have going on here? There, there's too much going on there. I couldn't figure out, you know, like who was, who was where and everything else. I had to look at it. And, you know, without his green head, it would be a toss-up as to who that was with the big blue cape. I'm like, mm-hmm. who is that? Now, the thing about it is, I don't know if you ever noticed this, but if you look where Martian Manhunter's arm is, his arm is the same color as Fire's pants, okay? And if you look at it at first glance, it looks like Fire is in a very inappropriate pose. (laughs)
0: I'm just like, oh my gosh! (laughs) I have never noticed that. I will never be able to unsee that now. Oh, poor Beatrice. Oh no, that's Uh, not fair. uh, uh
1: Uh-huh. I mean, it looks, I'm just It's like, oh my gosh. And I, I looked at it and went, like, oh, okay. They did not do that. But, I mean, I'm, uh, you Oh, know?
0: you're right. It, it looks spread eagle. It looks exactly like that's what's going on there. That is uh, terrible.
1: <laughs> now, whether that was on purpose or not, I don't know. Now, here's the thing about the suited guys. they uh, One, they all have red hair. What's up with that? Yeah. And they all look sooty. Did they mm. crawl through the rubble? Are they clones?
0: What's the deal? That is it. I, I just assume it's because since their background, they just try to make it look shadowy. But that's a good point. They all dark, 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 dark. You're right.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, and then as far as Tortellini's um, hat, it looks like something out of Coneheads. And I can't think of the Coneheads movie without thinking, remembering that scene of Dan Aykroyd's butt where he's walking through and they're on the <laughs> Conehead homeworld. So thanks for that <laughs> mental image.
0: <So. laughs> I would say you're welcome, except I have successfully dodged watching the Coneheads movie my entire life. Uh, so I that, w- that was intentional, and I'm glad I did now.
1: Uh-huh. You see Dan Ay- Aykroyd's butt. And I'm like, oh. And I'm just like, thanks for that mental reminder there, Shag. So,
0: so very much. Quit trying to push that image into the heads of all of us. Stop, stop.
1: <laughs> and I mean, it's him and this other guy. And they're walking through, you know, on the little cone, cone head Homeworld. So, you know, and, and now I'm going to make you go look at it.
0: I'm just going to mute you in a minute if you keep this up. <laughs> <laughs> What I love about this, I mean, first of all, I, I just realized this just now. Both covers uh, for Justice League America and Justice League Europe involve a central figure uh, a re- surrounded by the destruction they've caused. So sort of interesting. Both covers are sort of paralleling that way. But the cover's obviously hilarious. You know, can America mm-hmm. withstand the threat of a guy named Tortellini? I love his casual, like, everyday clothes. He's just wearing, you know, like, a button-down shirt and regular, mm-hmm. you know, khakis. It's such a contrast to all the supervillain equipment he's got. Like you said, that hat. He's got the crowbar. He's got a sword and Sonar's gun. You know, Blackrock, all this stuff. It just, and he's got this ridiculous smirk on his face like look what I did uh, he looks so happy and proud I think it's hilarious and as far as, uh yeah, yes, I absolutely noticed fire down there, uh, as you said, her pose. Not, not the legs, like you mentioned, but the rest of the pose. I don't think any red-blooded American male could miss that. Uh, mm. But I love Guy Gardner with his tongue sticking out. It's just, that's like the button on the whole thing right there. That's hilarious. Yep, yep. So it's a fantastic cover, and sadly, folks, this is going to be Adam Hughes' last issue as regular penciler on the book. So uh, he got, he does come back uh, here and there, but uh, this is his last regular issue, so we're just going to have to revel in this cover and all the art that we're going to get inside. So let's look at it. It's Plot and Breakdowns by Keith Giffen, Scripts by J.M.D. Mateus, Penciler's Adam Hughes, again, one last time. Inker is Jose Marzán Jr., Letter is Bob LePan. Colorist is Gene D'Angelo, Assistant Editor is Kevin Dooley, and Editor is Andy Helfer. The issue itself is called Pastiche. You want to start us off, City? Sure.
1: The issue opens with Wally Tortellini, the washed-up reporter who won several supervillain gadgets in a game of poker last issue. Now dressed in all of the gadgets, Tortellini is looking at himself in the Doing his best impersonation of Robert De Niro in that famous scene from the movie Taxi Driver. Calling himself Wally the Amazing Tortellini Man, he accidentally fired Sonar's gun, blasting an enormous hole in his apartment wall. Fearing arrest by the police, Tortellini flees the apartment building. Outside, Tortellini is confronted by four mysterious men in black suits. These operatives aim firearms at Tortellini, demanding his notebook full of the secrets of the Justice League members. Once Tortellini realizes these operatives are not law enforcement, he cuts loose with his newfound gadgets, causing destruction and mayhem. Elsewhere, another mystery man is watching the battle unfold on TV monitors. He is obviously responsible for the men in black operatives and is frustrated that his men are losing the battle. He makes a comment about going after the Justice League Europe team next. At the Dark Side Bar, the group of supervillains who lost their gadgets in a game of poker are upset about the loss of their special abilities. Sonar, Black Mass, Brainstorm, Crowbar, the Cavalier, and Blackrock for ease, let's just call them the poker losers. While trying to think positively about their futures, they overhear a TV news report about the destruction outside of Tortellini's apartment building. However, the poker losers are assumed to be the party's response for the destruction tortellini is using their weapons yet they are taking the blame
0: i'll take it from here so back at the embassy guy gardner is struggling to accept the new justice league international recruits of light ray and orion L. Ron informs Martian Manhunter of the violence being attributed to the Poker Losers, and given the suspected wide array of supervillains, the League dispatches the entire team to stop the apparent gang of criminals. Meanwhile, Tortellini is reveling in his newfound powers and causing massive amounts of destruction. He's got the mysterious Men in Black on the ropes when the Poker Losers arrive on the scene. The supervillains want Tortellini to return their special gadgets, and they don't want to take the blame for Tortellini's rampage. Unfortunately for the Poker Losers, this is when the Justice League arrives. The League sees the destruction as well as the Poker Losers once again in possession of their equipment. Therefore, the League makes the logical deduction that the Poker Losers are truly responsible for the destruction. Fire defeats Brainstorm, Guy Gardner takes out Black Mass, Blue Beetle clotheslines the Cavalier, Light Ray blasts Crowbar, Orion terrifies Black Rock, and Martian Manhunter disarms Sonar. Now, Somehow, Tornolini manages to go unnoticed and escapes without any of the blame. However, fearing for his own safety from further mysterious operatives, he decides to hand over the notebook filled with the JLA secrets to the Martian Manhunter. Now, the story ends with Quakemaster in the dark side bar with other supervillains commiserating with the bartender about the capture of their friends. Next issue, Guy Gardner and Ice in the return bout you demanded. Don't miss A Date with Density, Part 2. Oof. All right, Cindy. what do you think of the issue?
1: Okay. Okay. So the real person responsible walks away scot-free and I actually see this quite a bit. I run an after-school program, and a kid who is usually quiet stirs crap up and then gets the other kids involved, and the other kids take the fall <laughs> until I do some <laughs> investigating and find out who really started it. So, um, actually, I have a kid that she still has two days of detention after we get back on Tuesday for the loveliness she started on uh, Thursday. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it sounds a little bit like Ciscoid. He likes to stir up the trouble and then slink away, and then we all fight it out.
1: Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh huh. Yep. Yeah. So I guess there is no resident Uncle Ben to tell Tortellini that with great power comes great responsibility. Uh, he may have been handled one of the gadgets, but not all of them together. And so, of course, he's going to crash and burn.
0: So, which is sort of interesting because, like, at no point does he even consider being a superhero. Like, it never no. crosses his mind. He goes straight to being, I'm going to go rob some banks. I mean, that is immediately what he thinks about doing. So, yeah, he could have definitely used an Uncle Ben. That's for sure.
1: <laughs> now, this is an everyman take on hero heroes and villains. What would happen if someone without a true backstory got a hold of weapons? No one was left an orphan. No one got bathed in radiation. So, you know, that, I think that's it. I mean, he was basically, he's driven by money. And so there you go. He's like, hmm, I'm going to get some money. but What's my best way to do this? So.
0: Yep. Just an everyday schlub. Yeah. Now you got to wonder, because some of this uh, was the Justice League's fault. Like He, was, he wrote this expose several issues ago, mm-hmm. which got tanked by his editor. And it turns out it was all Crimson Fox from Justice League Europe who tanked the article, because She didn't want the secrets of the Justice League getting out. So you gotta wonder, did did Kristen Fox, the hero, causing him to not, you know, basically ruin his career, did she sort of cause some of this in a way? She might be a bit culpable in it. Yeah,
1: yeah, I can Hmm. see that. Yeah. Now, as far as Guy being taken down by Orion, you know, anytime Guy is taken down by anybody, I mean I'm just like "Eh He reminds me so much of the guys I went to high school with. I'm like, oh my lord. And he's not grown up and he's like, what, in his late twenties and twenties, early thirties.
0: Oh, absolutely. You know, so. Yeah. He's somebody who was like you know, on the high school football team and peaked at that point. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I do like the sort of the 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 I don't know, the parallel here, because you know, guy's usually the resident jerk and he's kind of the bully mm-hmm. on the team. And here you actually get to see him being bullied by Orion and he totally caves. You know, he's obviously scared of Orion and doesn't want to interfere with him. So that, that's pretty impressive. And I, I love his nicknames for him, too. Like, guy gets so bent out of shape. He calls Orion Oreo. He calls him O'Brien. Uh, then he calls Light Ray Swish Ray and Tightwad. I, mm-hmm. I, I thought that was hilarious. That cracked me up.
1: I don't know. It's one of those cases that, you know, you think Batman is all dark and gritty, but then uh, Orion makes him look like he's on even pill. I mean, Orion needs a chill pill or to get laid real bad. <laughs>
0: so. Well, he is the son of Darkseid. But, yeah, uh, he's, having a, he's having a rough time with it, without a doubt.
1: Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but part of the reason he might not be getting any action is because of that suit that they showed in issue number forty-three on page seven. Holy crap, that sucker's awful!
0: <laughs> well, that was the white one with the silver helmet, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's actually the better of the two choices because uh, I completely forgot about. It. I didn't even catch this back when he showed up in issue forty-two because you you mentioned oh, okay. forty-three, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, when he showed up in forty-two, he had this like insane, horrible nineteen-nineties, like extreme kind of costume oh, that he gotcha. wore for a little. While. While, that believe it or not was worse. Than the one you saw in forty three, because the forty three is kind of the classic costume. Uh, but uh, I didn't even notice that they changed it uh, until reading this issue. This issue, I was like, "Wait a minute!" So, uh, sadly, that is the better of the choices.
1: Oh my gosh! I mean, you know how you know Chris and I do the Justice League animated universe, and you know I am JLU cast, and we love the clean lines of the animated universe. That's mm. you know that's what I am after. That's what I like.
0: So. Yeah, well, I can't beat that. I mean, there is no way to beat that. That's for sure.
1: Yeah, so Cavalier's name Mortimer, just like Mickey Mouse's predecessor. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I didn't think about it. now. The Cavaliers a really old character. I wonder if they were thinking about that uh, at the time. I don't know, but it's such a such a great. I love how they play off his name constantly. They keep keep bringing it up because it's such an unusual, like you know, mm-hmm. funny name. That and Beto, which is Sonar's real name. I love that they pick up on that. Just keep using them over and over to make jokes out of it.
1: Yeah, yeah. Now I don't know about you, but how disappointed were you that the villains were not better poker players? Because I'm like, come on, that's a stereotype. You know, they're bad guys, so they should be good at poker.
0: Yeah. So. <laughs> well, they are the losers of the losers. I mean, these are like, you know, there's the bad guys, and then there's like B-list bad guys and C-list bad guys. And these guys are like Z-list bad guys. I mean, they got the worst. Like, they, lo- they lost poker. They lost their gadgets. They get blamed for something they didn't even, even do uh, and ultimately are arrested by mistake. I mean, they are absolutely – the term loser is perfect for them.
1: Bless their <laughs> little heart. <laughs> by
0: the Blessed way, folks, heart. that's Southern. For their stupid, just in case you didn't know that, folks.
1: <laughs> okay, now on page 10 of the book, Blue Beetle is not going to make that shot, but how tall is fire? Is she on her tiptoes? What's the deal? Because he's trying to make, you know, he's trying to make that shot, but he's too busy checking out fire because, you know, she's fire and she's all boom, boom. All
0: so. right. So let me, let me set the stage here for you folks. This is actually one of my favorite moments in the whole book. This is like a little background story going on just in the artwork. There's nothing in the dialogue. They're not part of any of the conversations. They're just off to the side. Like, like Cindy said, playing pool and it's blue beetles turn to shoot and fire. She's wearing a crop top and Tight jeans, and based on how elevated her butt is, she's got to be wearing like eight inch t- heels or something, right? Uh, yeah, she, I'm like, she, how tall is she? Good lord. And she has this, and I'm looking at it digitally, so it's really clear. You can see what's going on here. She is absolutely using her sex appeal to distract Blue Beetle, to make sure he misses this shot. And yes, he bounces the cue ball off the table. And then in the background, at the very end, you see them, you see a confrontation between Blue Beetle and Fire, and he's like pointing his finger at her, obviously yelling at her, and she's got her hand like going, what? what? Little old I mean, she clearly was using sex appeal to make Blue Beetle miss that shot. I find it freaking hilarious. I love that bit. But yes, I think uh, I think there's probably, like I said, eight-inch heels to make her that tall. It's got to be something like that. And to lift her butt oh, that yeah. much.
1: Oh, yeah. Exactly. So Orion putting the smackdown on Guy is fabulous. Even Martian Manhunter is thinking about incinerating him. And the Iron the robot, your moron ship.
2: <laughs>
1: you know. I mean, Guy's one of those guys. He's like, he doesn't realize what an obnoxious butthole he is. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I love Elrond calling him your moron. He's a fantastic addition. I mean, I miss Oberon; he was great, but Elrond is hilarious. And the way he just takes people down with those nasty lines, and everyone ignores him because he's like a robot—they don't think much about it. But uh, he is the wit coming out of him is a great way to uh, acknowledge what's going on in the book. I love it.
1: Oh, and what do we think about brainstorm for forgetting to turn his helmet on?
0: Okay, so that's historical because first of all, brainstorm's helmet is ridiculous. I mean, I think that's got to be one of the main reasons they've got Wally Tortellini. Where, or, uh, yeah, Tortellini wearing it is because it just looks stupid. I mean, that helmet is redonkulous. So the fact of making it a centerpiece of the whole adventure and then having brainwave with this supposedly amazing helmet, forgetting to turn it on makes it even funnier. So I I love that bit. It it fits perfectly with the theme of how much losers they are.
1: I mean, bless bless his heart. I mean, it just (laughs) blesses.
0: There it is again, folks.
1: Also, when he gets ready to smack down on him, he's like, cowabunga. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, your inner Bart Simpson showing.
0: (laughs) Well, it is 1990. So that is pretty appropriate for the time period.
1: (laughs) True, true. You know, you got to think about that. You're right. Okay. So Cavalier can't miss Rowdy Roddy Piper and Hulk Hogan. I mean, you've got them right there. And it just, you know.
0: That's enough. That's another one. This guy that dresses in like I don't know what, like period, 15, 16th century outfit, and carries a sword, and you know, seems to have a classical education or whatever, and yet he's interested in watching WWE wrestling, which, or I guess WWF back then, which right. is which is hilarious. That is again just something you don't expect. And uh, Demetrious and Giffen just threw that in there. It totally takes you to like what? Well,
1: speaking of Rowdy Roddy Piper, yesterday Chris and I were in, I think it was Walmart or somewhere like that, and there is a new Rowdy. Roddy Piper figure that he is now on the lookout for because it's from <laughs> the movie we, They Live. <gasps> you know. No they live. Oh, yes. yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's based on their appearances in movies. It's Rowdy Roddy Piper, The Rock, And I think John Cena is in the line and Chris wants the Rowdy Roddy Piper from where they live. So
0: that is on the lookout for that. So because that action figure is all out of bubblegum, folks. Oh, my gosh.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So we're on the lookout for it. If you see it, let me know. Shoot me, you know, shoot me a thing. Say, hey, we found this. (laughs) So who is worse, Guy Gardner or Blue Beetle, on the self-fawning routine?
0: Well, it, it's it's so de- like it's interesting. Like Gardner truly buys his own press; like he totally believes that he's that amazing and that awesome and that fantastic, and the world should bow to him. Beetle, it's more out of desperation. Like Beetle wants the adulation, knows he doesn't deserve it. You know, he, he's casking the cop. You know, like shouldn't you be awed by me? And the cop's yawning. And then you know, why does Martian Manhunter get all the attention? So Beetle's desperate. Inspiration guy legitimately believes his own press that he's amazing
1: mm-hmm. i don't know bless him <laughs>
0: On that same page, I got to mention, you talked about Fire earlier and her using the sex appeal with Beetle. She's using it later with Light Ray. Like, I think she thinks he's cute. Like, on page 19, where yeah. everything's settling down. I mean, she's she's doing the whole arm behind her back. She's got her jacket off. I mean, she's clearly trying to get his attention. And then later on, she's, you know, posing for the, on page 20, she's posing for the photographers and doing the whole, yeah. whole playing with her hair thing. She is definitely trying to get attention. Or uh, it could be just Adam Hughes just like, enjoys drawing her. I don't know which.
1: Well, I mean, that's that's a whole uh, look at these, my man, move. So... (laughs) We have, you know, Max and um, Martian Manhunter are talking about the journal there at the end, and what do you think about Martian Manhunter's whole thing, you know? He's like, well, you know, this is in the interest, you know, maybe we shouldn't do this, and then as soon as it becomes personal, he's like, I'll burn it, I'll eat the
0: ashes. You know,
1: As soon as it becomes personal about him, he's all about it, so.
0: I actually was enjoying, like, up to that point, I was reading this going, oh, here, Martian Manhunter's being the voice of reason. He's saying, Mm -hmm. look, you can't stop, if you're a a famous person, you can't stop the attention, can't stop the fake biographies you you know if you're going to be in the spotlight you just have to accept it and i'm like oh my gosh the voice of reason this makes perfect sense and then of course they button it with a joke which is funny but i mean they make a fair point if you're going to be famous you better be ready for the consequences you know right every time we say something in a podcast it goes through my mind you know for my eventual political career this could come back and bite me in the butt so
1: yeah exactly exactly I mean, I I've got—I've got to be careful because you know I, I'm in the public eye, and so I've got to behave myself. So
0: exactly right.
1: All righty. So the name of the bar is the Dark Side. How on the nose do you have to get?
0: Well, okay, apparently more so than this, because I didn't even think of that. Uh, Well, there's two ways to look at it. There's the dark side, meaning it's bad guys. Then there's the dark side joke about dark side of apocalypse. I didn't even Mm -hmm. think about dark side of apocalypse until the last joke in the book where they're saying, you know, what possible reason could Orion ever have for coming to this bar? Like, I never even put that connection together. But the fact that it's called the dark side and it's about bad guys, yes, that is very much on the nose. But, you know, a seedy bar in New York, probably a good name for it. I think it works. You
1: know, there you go. I don't know. It's kind of like the whole blue oyster kind of thing. So, <laughs> <laughs> Is
0: that Police Academy? Is that a Police Academy reference? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things I love about this issue is that you go 10 pages before the Justice League even show up in the book. I mean, that's what I mm-hmm. love, that this book has uh, developed so much goodwill that the reader will happily go along and enjoy whatever characters they've thrown at them, whatever story, whatever bizarre subplot. For 10 pages without the heroes even showing up, and you don't care. You don't even miss them. It's that well crafted, it's that well engaging. It's fantastic. I love that DiMatteis has thrown in some Star Trek jokes. He loves using as many Star, Tokes, Star Trek jokes as he can. He did a lot more in the early days, so it's nice to see those back. Always fun. And then there's this great bit where there's some real meta jokes about being a writer and how much being a writer sucks. And, you know, about eventually uh, you know having to kowtow to editors and maybe even going on, forget all this, he'll just go write comic books, which is pretty damn funny. I In fact, mm-hmm. I, tweet, I tweeted this out to J.M. DiMatteis, the writer, and to Kevin Dooley, the, the editor, asking oh. Said, asked if they thought it was as funny as we did uh, you know did, did Kevin Dooley and Andy Helfer who you know, in, sense, in a sense got called boy wonder editors if they found the humor that we did and apparently they did uh, DMT DM <laughs> said they loved it Kevin Dooley was laughing about it so I'm glad to hear the team behind the, behind the scenes enjoyed the joke as much as we did and then uh, the, the name—it took me. The name of the issue itself is pastiche, which took me a little while. I had to, you know, I'm like, okay, I, I've known the word. Where does this fit? It's an artistic work. Is definition, sorry, an artistic work in the style that imitates that of another work, artist, or period. And once I really read the definition, I'm like, okay, I see what they're saying. This is really Wally Tortellini, uh, you know, imitating the other characters, I guess. Maybe there's some double meanings here. I'm not sure. But that's I guess that's what I'm interpreting the name to be here.
1: Right, right. Yeah. That's what I was going with, too. I was like, because I'll be honest. I was like, I, I recognize the word, but I had to look it up again for the exact meaning because I'm like, oh, uh, you know. Right. <laughs> it a minute. It's not like dealing with elementary school. You know, you see that word very
0: much. Right, right. <laughs> well, I also, I mean, if you read it in a sentence in a book, you can kind of muddle your way. Way through it but just on its own it's like huh i wonder how that applies to the issue hmm well, and then I mentioned earlier, Adam Hughes, his final issue is regular penciler. He does come back for one more issue in seven months. Uh, I, I, I think he may do the occasional cover. I can't remember. I don't try to peek ahead too far, so I don't like to spoil the stories for myself. It's so why
1: did he around. leave the book, or do you know?
0: Uh, well, I do know the, the schedule was grueling for him. He, okay. he has a, I mean, you see how beautiful his work is, right? And cranking that out on a monthly basis was very hard for him, even back then. Uh, he was very, very, very young. This was like his first... Uh, major assignment with one of the major publishers. You know, he had done stuff like May's Agency and, and smaller press stuff, but he was real young and just broke out and keeping up with this kind of schedule and this level of detail. In each issue, his artwork would become more detailed as well. Uh, it became harder and harder to keep up. So I don't know that that's actually why he left, but I think there's no doubt about it, it was a struggle for him to keep up. So at this point, though, I mean, think about it. He went on to do every cover on every comic book. He did posters. He was probably making a fortune real, right about this time doing beautiful women pinups and who's who pages. And he probably like, you know, I mean, again, I'm putting words in his mouth, folks. I don't know this for real. But, you know, if I was him, I'd be like, okay, I could make twice as much and draw one picture or do a 22-page book. So what am I going to do? Right.
1: Exactly. Very good.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And as far as the characters go, these losers we're talking about, I can't help but wonder if Keith Giffen or J.M.D. Mateus, whichever one of them did, you know, thought about these things, I wonder if they just happen to have copies of Who's Who, issues number three and four, laying around while they're doing these issues. Now, if you guys don't know, uh, myself and Rob uh, do a Who's Who podcast. That's kind of how we got closer to the Franklins to start with, was that podcast, actually. Right, and, right. And issues three and four of Who's Who contain Blackrock, Brainstorm, Bug-Eyed Bandit, who was in the last issue, Cadre, who has Crowbar, Calculator and Calendar Man, who in last issue Cavalier all these characters are in issues three and four so it strikes me that more than likely uh, someone had Who's Who laid around on their desk and just decided let's go pick some morons out of these issues and I think uh-huh. that's how we ended up with these characters that
1: was that particular set yeah
0: Yep. that's that's, a, that's my take on it so Cindy that's the issue uh, overall did, did you love it was this fun because I mean, you know this, uh, you're known very well known for being a lover of <laughs> Starman for Justice League Unlimited but Justice League International is not an era we hear about a lot how did you feel About reading this again or reading for the first time?
1: Honestly, it really took me back to when I was a kid and sitting in the floor at Begley's and reading through issues. So, you know, that was one of those cases. Unfortunately, this wasn't a title that, you know, and I did not buy comic books, you know, to bring home. So Mm -hmm. if I was not reading them at Begley's, then I wasn't reading them. And when Chris and I got together, you know, I would read whatever comic books he had. And this wasn't a comic that he picked up as much. I mean, he's got some of them, but it wasn't one that, you know, he said, oh, you, you got to read this. That was during the whole Kingdom Come. That was, you know, during all that era. Then, you know, those were the ones that I was reading at that time. So.
0: You heard it here first, folks. Chris Franklin will never be on the show again. So just for that. no,
1: no. He's got a lot <laughs> of them, but it wasn't one that he pulled out. He's—I think he's got most of the issues. I mean, the ones that I read are the ones of his personal copies. We're not saying that, <laughs> but at that time, that was when when he and I got together. It was when Alex Ross was coming up through the ranks, and Chris was really showing me those comics and things like that. And I was reading what you know he had available.
0: It's about this point in the show when Chris is going to log into his computer and start typing. And- and comment about our our discussion here and then make some nasty comments about General Glory. Happens every month, so Chris, looking forward to it.
1: (laughs) Now, honey, I, you've got all of them. I'm looking at the things of comic books right now. You've got all of these. I'm just saying it wasn't a comic that you put out there a lot for me to read. That's all I'm saying. Don't get your knickers in a twist.
0: I love Son, it. Somebody sleeping on the couch tonight. All right, so. Yeah, it's me. <laughs> <laughs> Before we mess up the Franklin household anymore, folks, we need to get to the. Wahaha Award. This is where we nominate the funniest moment in the issue. Both myself and Cindy will pick one moment and only one will be awarded the coveted Blahaha Award. Cindy, you're our guest, so you get to go first. What is your nomination for the Blahaha Award of this issue?
1: This was really hard for me to pick because there were so many different ones that I was just like, oh well, I like this one, but this one's subtle, but I really like this one. I mean, I love the fact that, you know, Marsha Manhunter was all about, oh well, we have to do this, and you know, you have to understand this is in the public eye until it was about him and then he was like, Oh, wait, I'll, I'll no, no, we'll take care of that because you know, it's <laughs> on me, I, you know. I, I love that. And then you have the whole point where you know, you've got fire going little old me, you just using her the fact that she's got you know, plenty of you know, loveliness to go around, she's, like, she's using <laughs> it, she's rocking it. So, <laughs> and what about Mortimer? Bless his heart. I mean, don't any Mortimer's right in. I'm just saying, you know, bless your heart, you know. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, I had like I have a pick, but then I have my actual favorite. So I'll tell you what my pick was, and I and, and my pick was the part where all the all the losers are in the bar, and they they've realized they've lost their weapons, and that's it, and they decide, all right, we're going to try and you know we we bounce back from these kind of problems before we're going to make our life better, and they say to better days, and they're all toasting it, and then they hear their names on the news, and they're all like they all do a Danny take kind of spit take, which was yes. my pick, but but the truth of the matter is my favorite moment of the issue was also when you picked. Which is fire tempting blue beetle uh, on the on the pool table? So I think since both of us call that moment out, I think we need to award that moment the boohahah award.
1: Okay, and I want to know: Did the pool table have a mark in it? Is what I want to know. <laughs>
0: oh, How you badly did he scratch? Oh, you know he did. You know he ruined that green felt. So congratulations to Fire and her uh, vast tracts of land. Uh, you have won <laughs> the boohahah award. Please wear it with pride. It is as tangible as the laughter we give. You. Now, c- Cindy, I need to ask a favor. Uh, sure. Would you mind hanging around here at the New York Embassy for a little while and holding on to this notebook? It's uh, it's full of deep dark secrets all about the members of the Fire and Water Podcasting Network. I've been collecting this information for six years on these goofballs and I'm kind of afraid it'll happen if the notebook falls on the wrong hands. So I live in fear what Ryan or Chris would post on the internet or social media with this information. Would you mind hanging on to this for a little while? Well, of
1: course.
0: <laughs> Don't worry, Cindy. Uh, we'll bring you back at the end of the show. After this podcast promo break, I'm I'm going to head over to the Paris Embassy for the 20th issue of Justice League Europe.
2: I know it's heartbreaking to have your favorite shows preempted, but look what you're getting in stress. DLUCast well, brings you Justice League Season 2. Woo!
1: Back in business. The Justice League faces their greatest foe.
2: This is a chance to rid ourselves of the league once and for all. Dark side. Brainiac. Dr. Destiny. Lex Luthor. Amazo. Sandal
1: Savage. Eclipso. The Joker. Harley
2: Quinn. Harley Quinn.
1: The Royal Flush Gang.
2: The Secret Society of Supervillains. And themselves? you Cast Season 2 available on iTunes and Apple Podcasts and at FirewaterPodcast.com. Always have to be the hero, don't you? Right back at you. Yeah. Imagine a state where reality is a dangerous concept, where every aspect of public and private life is strictly controlled, where the voice of the state is the only voice and the only limits are that of the imagination, and even that is gone. Imagine a state where memories are wiped away, leaving only traces of the past, where the final frontier of space becomes a weightless freezing vacuum except for what is useful to the state a great intergalactic state of hundreds of planets that stretches across the universe called the Federation. And imagine all that stands in the way of total conquest is a tiny band of thieves, smugglers, embezzlers, murderers, and rebel rousers. Are they criminals or liberators? Reality is a dangerous concept, but everyone interprets it in a slightly different way in Blake Seven. Welcome everyone to Straight Out of the Federation. You can listen to this podcast at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, write to us on Twitter at SO Federation, or the website blake7.libson.com. Email us at writeonnetwork at gmail.com. That is W R I G H T on network at gmail.com. Take care, everyone.
0: And now, our coverage of Justice League Europe number 20. from break and I'm here with our second co-host for this episode. Now today's guest is a lifelong fan of comic books and role-playing games and at the tender age of six, six years old folks, today's guest started designing game material for D&D. We're talking about the red box for you old school fans. Now she's continued designing game systems and RPGs and since 2015 she's been demoing a game that she helped co-design at DragonKind. She's currently knee-deep in several comic book reading projects, like a semi-complete Marvel read-through, Legion of Superheroes uh, in the early part of the Baxter series, and the Wally West Flash series. And more importantly, she is rereading the 1980s Doctor Fate series. Whoop, whoop. Love that. Uh, which is, works out well because she shares a name with one of the leads in that series. No, her name is not Petey the Demon Dog, people. Jeez. Alright, folks, please help me welcome to the show Mix Inza Morgan star, the 108th Sage. Welcome to the Paris Embassy, Inza. Thanks for being here. How are you doing? I am doing so well. Thank you for inviting me to the embassy today. Ah, I am thrilled to have you here. We have been in contact via uh, Twitter for, oh my gosh, too many years. And so I'm glad that we finally got a chance to chat.
3: Indeed. This is kind of surreal to me, I will admit.
0: (laughs) So the name Inza also parallels with one of my absolute favorite characters, Dr. Fate. And of course, Inza Kramer goes on to become Inza Nelson. Uh, I understand there's a story there.
3: Yes. So I am a trans woman. And I was blessed with having three names, the middle one of which being gender neutral. So when I came out to myself, I was able to just like start using my middle name and having people that might have been on the fence about some new name being able to just, okay, well, fine, that's your name anyway, kind of like some of the people that were in my life that were a little more resistant to this whole me being trans thing. The fact that I was using my middle name of Morgan worked fine, you know, Mm -hmm. but then I needed to change my first name at some point and I just didn't have a name. More to the point, I had too many names. Mm. i'm a role player who's played many female characters over the years so as soon as i almost picked zoe cleo got mad as soon as i almost picked moira etc etc so i kind of couldn't pick any of the names that i'd used for years and i had this symbol i've used since like 1990 ninth grade sitting there doodling during biology i came up with this little symbol that i have been using as my signature ever since you can see a picture of it if you go to my instagram i have one tattoo and it's of that symbol but it it's kind of a Z with a line through it and symbol up top with it's like a kind of curvy in and effectively you can kind of make letters out of some of that especially the Z and the N and I had realized belatedly years later that a name i had been using in role playing games is like my main avatar and that symbol you could like spell that name with that symbol it kind of blew me away. But then when I came out to myself years after that, I was like, oh, that's a guy character. I don't want to like keep using that. And so what can I spell with my symbol? Oh, my goodness. I can spell Enza, like Enza Kramer. Yay! Because my other character's name was Nazim. I knew from experience of playing Dragon Quest 7 that if you chop off that M, that starts looking like a bad word. And also those same letters are in Enza because I can spell them out of my symbol. And I didn't want to necessarily have a name that anagrammed to that. But then I realized because of the way my symbol works, the I could just as easily be a Y. So I just made the I into a Y and a Y N Z A, Inza.
0: I love that. And, you know, Inza is a name that you just don't hear too often uh, nowadays. And I love that you've reclaimed such a wonderful name and you're using it. And Inza was in control of Dr. Fate in the Teasdale Imperative. So technically, Inza's part of the JLI. So that works out perfectly. I know, right? So also, lifelong role player, represent loving that. Also a role player myself. I understand that you have been demoing a game that you helped co-design. Is that right?
3: That's right. So back in 1999, me and my then ex-college roommate, now current roommate, uh, still in Athens. Uh, Yeah, I live in Athens, Georgia, by the way. We were kind of like wanting to make a game and I'd been playing Final Fantasy Tactics and it was neat, but the cross-classing wasn't good. And so we kind of wanted to make some kind of like tactical game. But we basically eventually came up with the idea of what if we had role-playing without a game master? And we could just cooperatively tell a story. When we got to a battle, we'd fight battles. And so we started fooling around with rules and then a couple of years later he moved up to Athens and we and had typed a whole bunch of stuff in computer and we like advanced it and we talked about moving up the version numbers every once in a while. So like Battle Quest was our kind of placeholder name for this game Mm -hmm. and quickly just shortened to BQ. And by the time 2009 or 10 or something like rolled around the game had gotten kind of unwieldy of like three and a half hour long games and stuff and we'd Taken some measures. Kind of the next version, Battle Quest six was BQ next. It was BQ quick because it was like an hour and a half per game instead of that. At that point, we were like, our game is like almost back to like the point where you could release it if people have never met us could play the game. Let's make sure the next version change. Let's have the next version change be for other people instead of for us. Mm-hmm. And we so we changed a whole bunch of stuff that had just been the way the game worked for ages and as we were doing this, we were like, we want to be able to, like, start playing this game with other people besides just our friends up in Athens. So we went up to the guy who was running the miniatures department at DragonCon in 2014 we we're like, hey, can we get a table next year so we can show our game to people? We just want to, like, have a table reserved. How do we do that? So he said, email me in January. We emailed him and he asked, how many badges do you need? We were like, what do you mean we get badges out of playing our game at like, Yeah, you're providing a service. You're giving people the ability to play a, a, a game they wouldn't be able to otherwise. So we me and a few of our like loyal players here came and ran so many people we ended up being positioned right next to the down escalator into the game room mm-hmm. back when it was at the, front of the Hyatt, and it was like a fire hose of new people like right next to our table we had no idea how popular our game could be with little kids oh and,
0: wow okay uh, just, like, because
3: we'd been playing with college people and older you know all our lives but pretty quickly we realized that kids as long as they're not too young to know when turns happen and if they're like geeky enough to be able to like get rules and stuff then and yeah, it's gonna be. Yeah, it seems like a. Anyway, all that to say, we didn't want to just go to Con with a game called Battle Quest because there had been like s- at least six different things called Battle Quest over the time since we started making the game. So we put a little subtitle on it and called it Battle Quest: Adventure Awaits. And then the tagline we had for the sign says, "A cooperative, story-based, tactical adventure game."
0: And it's awesome that uh, you're able to bring kids into that, because I, I used to work in a, a comic book role-playing game store, and it was always exciting to see some kid come and find a game and get super excited about it, and just, they, I mean, they, 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 they live in it. I mean, it becomes their passion for a while there, and it's just really cool to, to have that opportunity to watch the next generation of gamers, you know, get involved and find something they love.
3: Indeed, and you know, some their families keep coming to Dragon Con every year, so there have been some times we've seen the same kid play our games like two or three years in a row, and then, like you say, lose interest as they get to be a little bit older and like want to go do other things. It's kind of neat.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it, that's the natural progression. I I <laughs> I've watched that with my own kids as far as getting them into one thing, and then now they've they've both grown beyond me. They're much more mature than I am now at this point. So, oh well. And
3: that is how the universe progresses. <laughs>
0: All right, so I got to ask you, Inza, what is your personal origin story with the JLI? How did you find the book? How did you fall in love with it? Like, where's your passion for the JLI come from?
3: Well, to be honest, I grew up a Marvel kid, Power Pack, X-Men, Fantastic Four, Avengers, all that stuff. Those were like the comics we were reading. But then at some point, my parents heard some bad things about what was going on in the comics these days and made us divest ourselves of our collections. Oh, I know. Not too many years after that, though, I got a driver's license and some extra income and I got back into comics. <laughs> And I, like, started with Marvel, like that sup- Soviet Super Soldiers one shot or whatever was the first comic I bought with nice. my own actual money.
2: All right. But
3: then pretty quickly, me and another friend had started both getting into that pre-Vertigo DC stuff, like the Grant Morrison uh, Doom Patrol and then Shade the Changing Man and, like, kind of like those comics that were the building ground for Vertigo before it really became Vertigo. hmm And... That was pretty much what I read for the rest of high school. Then it was, I guess, pretty early on in college, like 1995 is when I started really going into the back issue bins of the comic shop up in Rome and found things like Hawk and Dove and that Dr. Fate series and was just like, yes, this is awesome. And the jewel in the crown of all of those comics I found in that era is the JLI. Oh, my
2: goodness. (laughs) The
3: absurdity of the humor in this series fits me like a glove. And it was a great way to learn about the rest of the DC universe through such a great cast of characters. I, uh... Do want to point out that I'm not sure it's a, like a coincidence that my two favorite straight couples in an, all of fiction are related to the JLI. Oh, really? Okay. I would love to see a sitcom with Ralph Dibney and Sue Dibney being neighbors with Scott and Barta Free. Those <laughs> people, their dynamics between them is just, oh, I love it. Although I will admit, I don't care if it's a comic book or a CW show. I do want the version of Sue we're getting in the Flash right now. Ninja Sue Dearborn is awesome.
0: Oh, my God. See, I I have drifted away from the CW shows or, of recently. Uh, I still try and follow Stargirl. I don't know if that really counts. But either way, <laughs> I, so I haven't seen Flash in a long time. And I do know Firestorm's coming back. Actually, by the time you hear this, for all we know, that maybe he's back on the show already. But either way, so he they've might, got...
3: He might be behind myself.
0: Yeah. So they've got Sue on the show now, huh?
3: Yeah, so she got introduced and like was kind of being teased and like in and out and she was so awesome. Kind of like at first she was introduced as almost like an international jewel thief but then you find out she's doing it for good reasons kind of thing and Ralph Dibney is like still a major part of the show at that point but uh, I don't know being not into the show as much that actor ended up having some deep in his past like improper tweets and stuff and so was asked to leave the show or step down I don't know exactly how that worked but him being elongated man but the version they had on like show was able to basically just shape change and change the color of his skin which was weird Hmm. so like they basically had set it up so they could just put any other actor in there and he could just be like yeah i decided to just like didn't like my face but but she liked this one or something like that you know like whatever they could have just continued to have them in the show and they didn't they were like oh no now we're gonna have to like shovel them off and we were afraid that our awesome version of sue was gonna get like killed by coincidence or something but i like i said i'm behind but i'm like part way through the second half of season seven and she's come back just by herself to like interact with some of the other characters and it's she's so awesome i love it yeah, so, well cast, so well done
0: i hadn't thought about the cw flash show as being sort of a home for some of the jle characters i mean you've got a wally west you've got elongated man you've got sue that's interesting i mean indeed indeed uh the, actually wally
3: the actor playing wally has gone on to bigger and better things as well so i think he's gonna like come back or he probably already has come back like i say i'm behind on some of it
0: i know I know the CW shows in general have been a home for the uh, Justice League Detroit characters, so I'm glad to see some more Justice League Europe uh, and international characters getting some love.
3: Indeed. Uh, Legends of Tomorrow is definitely my favorite show on there and has some of those Detroit characters, even though it has definitely drifted very far away from comics, like DC Comics. They were doing a whole season on he- on aliens, and I don't know if the, any DC aliens made it in there. It was kind of disappointing <laughs> that way. It's still a fun show, but it is frustrating how little it draws from comics sometimes.
0: Yeah, but in a lot of ways Legends of Tomorrow captures the spirit of Just League International better than any of the other shows. The ludicrousness, the Bebo, the, the comedy, the fun. It's uh, It feels very much like a JLE show. I mean, we, we've had some conversations on the air before where like uh s- steel sort of represents booster gold and the atom represented uh blue beetle for a while. And it's, it, it feels very JLE. So a lot of times, sure. or J- just JLI a lot of times.
3: Very much so. Very much so. Workplace comedy is a great description of that show at times.
0: Absolutely. Well, speaking of which, why don't we get into this workplace comedy? Folks, we are talking about Justice League Europe number 20 from DC Comics, cover dated November 1990, was on the shelves October 2nd, 1990. Cover price is $1 dollar four Shiny Quarters, and the cover is by Marshall Rogers and Bruce Patterson. Inza, would you like to describe the cover for us?
3: Okay, this is, of course, a now-famous cover, endlessly homaged in the years to follow. But if it's been a while since you've seen the original, sit back and enjoy. We see the breakout character of 1990, Beefeater, large and in charge, striding across the country of France and showing the city of Paris who's boss. Admittedly, he seems to have left his home country of Britain a smoldering ruin in his wake but at least the destruction was patriotic enough to paste a Union Jack on the Black Cloud of Doom. This is, of course, a bit of creative license on the part of Marshall Rogers, because would you say he's twice as high as the Eiffel Tower there, Shag? Uh,
0: Might Maybe even more than twice as ha- tall.
3: So yeah, about that. I actually had reason to look up how tall the Eiffel Tower was recently. It is 300 meters tall, or since we're living in a less rational country here, 985 feet. So that would put the beef eater at around two thousand feet tall. I don't know. I guess that would make it six hundred meters. Again, not actually rational here. <laughs> now, growing to that size isn't one of beef eater's powers, but the way he's offhandedly flattening the Eiffel Tower there, not to mention the rest of Paris, does give you an indication of the destructive power he displays within.
0: Uh, so you summed it up right i mean this is the character find of 1990 i mean he went on of course to be more popular than lobo and wolverine combined uh so it's uh without a doubt one of the most iconic combo covers of all time it's right up there with uh you know crisis on infinite earth number seven
3: indeed the, <laughs> indeed i mean who can forget that all the homage covers this inspired The epic cover of savage sentinels number eight lord apotheosis striding across the smoking cityscape of logopolis and then Amazing Ecstatics number zero, where the dupe balloons just floating out of the ocean and across LA as it smokes from unidentified but definitely cess fires across the city. Oh my goddess, how could I almost forget the opening splash page on that classic second wave amalgam mashup? Michael Hellstrom, sole leader number one. Dr. Mephistopheles is laying waste to new London beneath him. That was definitely the best work Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise,
0: praise, his, praise name. his name.
3: Has done post-crisis in my opinion. <laughs>
0: All right, I don't know how long we can keep the joke going, but. (laughs) Indeed, indeed. So, uh, obviously, Beefeater is a character probably none of you have ever heard of, other than if you like alcohol. Uh, but the cover just screamed so much fun. And i got to say, you pointed out something I did not even pick up on, uh, which was the explosion on the island behind him that's forming the, the, the cloud of, of the, the Union Jack. Like, I noticed the Union Jack cloud, but I didn't put together that that's England. It makes perfect sense. Of course that's England. Uh, but I didn't even think about the fact that it was.
3: Yeah, if you see the channel and then you see this little like landmass behind it with just like black clouds of doom. Yeah, it's. Like I said, like I said, uh, carelessly displaying destructive power indeed.
0: And all the little fires behind him in Paris are clearly his footsteps. Like you can see exactly where he walked and caused all this destruction, which is great. And it's I mean, the cover absolutely is representative of what happens inside. But it's also just a great way to celebrate this ridiculous character. So and you know, this is something that we needed after five issues of, you know, extreme with the extremist story. It was time for some levity, and this definitely sets the tone right out of the gate.
3: Indeed. And we must take a moment, especially for the people who haven't actually seen this cover, to point out that the Beefeater looks like, and his name, are inspired by the Yeoman of the Guard, those Tower of London guards there you see with the big black tall caps. Those are specifically for that post. They have little black buller hats when they're like marching in parade and stuff. And that's what the Beefeater's wearing here.
0: Exactly. Yeah. So the, yeah, the Ceremonial Guardians. I, I I had to look up for the definition. I, mean, I had a kind of a sense for what they were, but yeah, the, the Ceremonial Guardians, the Tower of London, and I, the you know the pr- the idea behind it is that they're supposed to look after the prisoners in the tower uh, and safeguard the British Crown Jewels. Obviously, they don't do that anymore. They just give tours and such. But yeah, so he looks like something exactly like you would see doing that or on the beef eater gin bottle is exactly what you're looking at, folks.
3: Exactly. It's kind of funny, actually, that I am on this episode because I do not like gin and I am not a beef eater or any meat, really.
0: <laughs> my, my wife's a vegan and my daughter's a vegetarian, so uh, I, I don't know that they're going to be a fan. Of this character, either.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm just a vegetarian. I am way too addicted to feta cheese.
0: <laughs> well, let's get into this. All right, so, folks, the plot and most likely the breakdowns are by Keith Given. Script is by Gerard Jones. Penciler is Marshall Rogers. So, we've got a guest penciler here. Inker uh, is Bob Smith. Letter is Bob LaPan. Colorist is Gene D'Angelo. Assistant editor is Kevin Dooley. Editor is Andy Helfer. The issue itself was is called Rue Britannia. So, Inza, you want to lead us off?
3: We begin with a linguistically obvious Englishman digging through a trunk, looking for... Aha! He finds that ridiculous mask shown on the cover and puts it on, self-assured that now he will not be laughed at. He then grabs Big Barda's battle rod. Oh, no, it's just a British knockoff, which he seems inordinately proud of. And he's amazed that the witch hasn't incinerated it yet. We don't have to wait long to find out who this witch is. For on the next page, the witch is introduced on the phone with one Maxwell Lord, belittling the contents of a memo her husband sent without her knowledge. She finally relents, agreeing to get Michael on the phone. Enter Esteban, a Spanish-speaking fellow who seems to have been bombarded with those OG gamma rays. You know, the ones that turn you gray, not green. Unlike the Hulk or the leader, though, it was not his strength or brains that were exaggerated. Instead, his innate ability to put up with and counter-troll all manner of white nonsense was increased to incredible proportions. And so, he proceeds to troll this unpleasant lady for the rest of the page, as she tries to get him to get Michael to come speak to the nice Mr. Lord on the phone. After an exploding sound is heard from the above, he adroitly observes he may be an addict. As the scene shifts to the attic, the subtle clues as to why witches were being maligned by association with this woman are laid bare. She meets his nervous enthusiasm with withering emotional abuse and makes it clear this is far from the first time she has done this. But while Michael Morris has been a worm, the Beefeater's a lion, and though not yet clad in his full regalia, he summons the spirit of his ancestor and begins to recount his father's glorious World War II adventures with General Glory, mopping up the bloody Nazis. To which the witch reminds him said General was a comic book hero from the excellently named Tuppany Fun Comics Magazine while his father spent the war in a Bulgarian prison camp after muffing his first mission. And she is not shy about implying it was because he was a drunk. Never fear! The Beefeater is nothing if not obtusely immune to criticism. So he scoffs at her attempts to destroy a nation's myths and leaves with head held high. We are then treated to another page of Esteban trolling that lady, as we see Michael, back in his unassuming civilian garb, leaving with a suitcase. Our cold open over at last, the scene shifts and the reader is treated to the title and credit, as well as three lovely ladies, two charming children, and a diseased-looking flerken-esque creature, (laughs) all relaxing in the sand. It seems that the hole that the Global Guardians made in the Paris Embassy's backyard has been transformed into a charming beach without the bother of the ocean. Unfortunately, that afflicted-looking feline, adopted some issues back by my fellow Ms. Starr, has wasted no time turning it into their own personal litter box to the disgust of Dimitri's kids. Meanwhile, we see the boys playing hand egg in the background to the great amusement of the French street crowd. As the ladies are wondering about the mysterious Crimson Fox and discussing the also-absent Silver Sorceress and Blue Jay who are out busy celebrating their freedom in fine capitalist fashion by shopping. The fellows continue to mangle the concept of hand egg, which seems to have really revved up the crowd. No, it seems it wasn't the storied game of hand egg being made a mockery that has so revved up the crowd, as Wally discovers in a hilarious double-take panel that had me thinking he was Ralph for a second. As we turn the page, we are treated to a glorious splash page of the ever-fit and sporty Miss Karen Starr in halter top and micro shorts exiting the embassy. She reacts with a resigned disgust at how stereotypical the crowd is in their reactions to the vision of beauty before them. She kindly thanks the crowd, now revealed to be at least 99% composed of men, for their compliments. Then reduces them to hangdog expressions with a super shout of, Knock it off! She takes a moment to make sure Wally knows he's included in that, then proceeds to sound more like a Kryptonian than an Atlantean, wondering why she defends this planet. After Wally mouths off again, he exits page left to tear his head from his shoulders. At last, on the final page of my summary, we turn to the hero of our tale, Still in civilian guise of mild-mannered Michael, as he arrives on the scene, mistakes the French street crowd at the gates of the embassy for a crowd of boorish American tourists, and then spots the French version of Alou and spends the rest of the page changing into that guise by which he came to dominate D.C. in the 90s. Who can forget his epic battle with Doomsday? His glorious return with his left hand replaced by a... Oh, wait, we were supposed to be done with the joke already? Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, it's hard not to celebrate Beefeater. I mean, come on, right? I know. I'll take it from here. So we immediately jump into a two-page horror murder fest where Rick is trapped in the terror mask. It's kind of weird, though, that they don't finish Rick's story. But supposedly it's continued in something called TurboGrafx-16 Splatterhouse. Yeah, because that two-page comic uh, ad and ad for a video game was really necessary in the middle of a JLE comic. Anyway. So back at the Paris Embassy, Kilowog is nearly finished with some of the technological upgrades, including an upgraded security system and a potentially dangerous new tachyon power generator. Now, outside of the gates, our hero, Michael, has finished his costume change. In all the appropriate pomp and circumstance, the beef eater proudly saunters towards the gates of the embassy. Beef Eater is mocked by the French onlookers, making references to the alcoholic gin of the same name. And our hero is quite verbose in his distaste for the French as he uses his JLI pass to enter the embassy gates. Unfortunately, upon entering the embassy building itself, Beef Eater triggers the new intruder defense systems. As Beef Eater begins to blast every defensive system in sight, he also mistakes Kilowog for an alien invader. Which is kind of fair, because in exchange, Kilowog mistakes Beef Eater for a supervillain. In the confusion, Beef Eater accidentally blasts the new tachyon power generator, the one I mentioned earlier and described as potentially dangerous. Yeah, this is bad. Kilowog grabs Beef Eater and runs to safety outside of the embassy. The generator causes the entire embassy to collapse and implode, and it's destroyed, leaving only a giant crater in the ground where the embassy once stood. The team's shock and horror is quickly replaced with anger towards the Beefeater. Now, the last page features Silver Sorceress and Blue Jay in their civilian identities out shopping and acclimatizing to their new world. They reflect how the JLE and the embassy are their new home, only to discover the embassy has gone missing. Next issue, when the going gets tough, the tough goes shopping. So that's our issue, and it's a pretty darn funny one. What would you think of it?
3: Oh, I love this issue. This is one of those issues that stayed in my mind, especially the cover, ever since I first read it in the late 90s, especially the way it follows the previously depressing storyline. It was just mm-hmm. such a puff of delightful wackiness. Like, just the sheer absurdity. Mwah! Beautiful.
0: <laughs> it sort of uh, reminds me a lot of the cat issue with the art thief. I mean, they even reference it in the issue. It feels very similar to that sort of level of crazy hijinks. Uh, it, to me, it feels a little bit more like a JLA issue than a JLE issue. But, I mean, when, when you really step back from it, I mean, this. this. This whole issue, the only story in it is somebody comes to visit the embassy and ends up blowing it up. I mean, that is really all that happens the whole issue. But I had so much fun with it, that's perfectly fine with me.
3: I know, right? I didn't even parse it until recently that basically the only person in costume this entire issue is Beefeater. Metamorpho looks like Metamorpho. And then Captain Adam like silvers up on the last page or like right before it. But, yeah, that's it. Beefeater is the only one in costume. All issue. Everybody else
0: is in swim trunks. I did not even pick up on that until you mentioned it. And, and you know, along those same lines, in the spirit of JLE, uh, pretty much everyone calls each other by their real names through the whole issue. You know, it's there, other than Captain Adam, because they, they still don't. I don't think they know his real name at this point. But they don't, They you know, Power Girl's Kara, Wally's Wally, you know, Dimitri's Dimitri. They're not calling each other by the superhero names at all in this either.
3: Exactly. I love it. So, I will admit that the beach-like setup at the beginning, the opening embassy scene, had me actually assuming the boys were playing volleyball in the background. But no, it was hand egg.
0: Okay, you keep throwing me with this. What is hand egg? What are you talking about? They're playing football.
3: Wait, what do you mean it's called football? They aren't kicking it, and that certainly does not look to be something shaped like a ball.
0: (laughs) There are some references from the French people. They think it's so- it should be soccer. And Dimitri doesn't know that he can uh, throw the ball. But, okay, still don't know. Oh, a handball. I mean, uh, what do you call it? hand egg?
3: To be honest, I do not remember where I got that. But somebody in passing called it hand egg and then like mentioned it was because it certainly isn't played with your feet or shaped like a ball. And I just loved it so much. But who said that did not stick in my brain, but the beauty of it was did. So as somebody who's never really been into sports and being picked on by the football players in my uh, high school, just, yeah, I didn't ever have a strong affinity with anything really like that and so when i have an opportunity to slightly lampoon it i like i like to take it
0: fair enough fair enough it's sort of like the wahaha you don't really know where it comes from but it sticks
3: exactly i do have to take a second on this whole witch business Uh-oh. as someone
0: who identifies as both a witch
3: and a lady i is prepared to get my hackles up when michael starts in on that on the next page, though, it quickly became apparent that he may be unfairly maligning us witches, but not his wife. I can only assume that this dynamic is taken from Faulty Towers, as the characters seem to be. But either way, I am glad we've been moving away from the wife-as-a-shrew trope for a while now.
0: Yeah, so, okay, there are there are without a doubt some uh, unpleasant stereotypes here, because it goes beyond just the wife issue. Uh, there's also the gentleman that works there, Esteban, uh, who barely speaks English. It It's not... Uh, stereotypes that we today would be comfortable with. However, these are completely, as you mentioned, Faulty Towers. It is completely based on Faulty Towers. I mean, they're not even subtle about it. I mean, he is clearly John Cleese's character, Basil Faulty from Faulty Towers. The wife is clearly Sybil Faulty, And Esteban is clearly the character of Manuel. They're literally lifted right out of the show. Uh, in, in the show, they run a small hotel, uh, sort of like running an embassy. I mean, you even see Esteban. He's carrying, so it looks like towels or sheets or something that's what Esteban did at the at the hotel i mean it, it is completely based on faulty towers clearly they they were having fun with that and you can even hear John Cleese delivering Michael or Beef Eater's dialogue, especially like his rants. They sound exactly like John Cleese in Faulty Towers. And it's one of the most celebrated sitcoms uh, in England. They absolutely love it. it. It lasted two seasons, and it is pretty funny. But it's, I mean, it's from the 70s, and it was a different time. And so that, that's why you've got the really bad stereotypes. But they're still funny.
3: Oh, yeah, indeed. And I like to headcanon things as not being as bad as they are sometimes. Thus, Esteban being uh, Gamma Ray empowered to be able to put up with nonsense like all this and just like be <laughs> trolling them back. As opposed to just being an offensive stereotype. He's like leaning into the stereotype like Black Lightning the uh, slang when he was Black Lightning, but not when he was Jefferson Pierce so that people wouldn't suspect him and things like that.
0: Right, right.
3: Okay, I gotta say, Power Girl is hot but it does seem like she's confused about the group that the crowd are being stereotypical of. He calls them French, not men.
0: Hmm. Well, I mean... That's a good point. Uh, they should... She should specifically call out them being the men, but, yeah, I, the point... Again, it's another stereotype. You know, the the whole ooh-la-la thing from the French. Now, backing up from that, I will agree, we get a full-page splash on page nine of Kara in that, you know, very tight-fitting outfit. It is super hot. Because, I mean, it, you've, you've hired Marshall Rogers to draw your comic. It only makes sense that you're going to ask him to draw sexy women. I mean, he, he's super... You know, he's famously known for, you know, designing Silver St. Cloud, for Batman being incredibly sexy. So, you get... Carla being sexy, you get Sue being sexy. You get Catherine Colbert in. Oh my gosh, uh, a very, very tiny bathing suit, very hot. <laughs> yes, please. I mean, I mean, just yes, yes. That is true. Uh,
3: <laughs> and I will admit, I do love the way she's drawn in this. Her entire body is well proportioned, and even in a halter top, she's not drawn to be top heavy or anything. She just looks like a beautiful woman with not small breasts.
0: Yes, I would agree. Yeah, they did a very good job making Kara, or Power Girl, look just very physically fit. They did a great job with that. Not as ridiculous as it's been under uh, Bart Sears' pencil, without a doubt.
3: Okay. Another thing I have to call out the three Stooges esque sound effects that happen when the beefeater enters the embassy and we don't actually see what's happening until the next <laughs> page. <laughs> <It> just, <"Mwah." laughs>
0: the the beefeater scene where he's in the embassy. So, yeah, he, he enters the embassy and it's a full page of just what? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. So it's always fun to hear someone count on a podcast, I guess. Anyway, eleven panels of just hijinks of the Beefeater being beaten up by these new security systems that Killawaga put in place. They're hilarious. I mean, it's very slapstick. Marshall Rogers does a great job with the storytelling. Because, I mean, comedy is hard. Comedy and drawing pictures is even harder. And Marshall does a great job of just showing how hilarious this is. And then... Since this is supposed to be John Cleese, I can't help but mention some of the running that Beefeater's doing here. It looks a little bit like the Ministry of Silly Walks from Monty Python. I don't know whether that's intentional or not, but I can't help be reminded of that. But yeah, it's a super fun – the whole sequence is super hilarious.
3: It is. I mean, like you say, comedy, especially physical comedy being conveyed in a comic medium has been messed up so many times. But this nailed it. Yeah, without a doubt. And another thing I need to call out is how great a character Killabog is. I mean, I've loved him every, pretty much every time I've seen him. Uh, Green Lantern Corps, JLI, just, ah, such a great character. But he is the consummate straight man in this comedy act. Just reacting with calm, even, annoyed,
0: just beautiful. He is, is one of my absolute favorite supporting characters. Like I, I first met him in Green Lantern Corps, uh, but I didn't really know much about him. And then they put him into JLI. And I realize he's gone on... I mean, he's a movie star now, for goodness sakes. I'm a cartoon star. And people know him as the, the drill sergeant in Green Lantern. But to me, he will always be, as you just said, the straight man in the JLI book. The guy who's got the common sense and can fix anything and doesn't have any powers. I mean, that is Kilowog to me. I absolutely love him. And yeah, he's, he's superlative in this role. I, I do like he calls Justice League Europe the second stringers uh so it's kind of funny when he does that
3: yep and then like when he actually finally beats Beefeater he's not like oh goodness I'm not have to take out the trash or anything he's just like oh the security system's got this super villain I don't have to do anything and just like is blase about everything right up until Beefeater hits the tachyon casing and then he's just oh no don't tell me you didn't you couldn't you wouldn't
0: (laughs) And then on the next page, when Beefeater's yelling at Killawog about it, Bob LePan just as the letter really steps up here, and he's got some word balloons with really fancy, almost calligraphy-like bits uh, of dialogue from Beefeater. Which, if you have ever watched anything with John Cleese or even specifically Faulty Towers, you can tell that is a special John Cleese—you know, really, like really loud John Cleese kind of way of yelling and delivering those lines. That's what's going on here, and it's expertly done.
3: Oh, yes. We, we must have panic. No, no. We must have panic. It's just like, oh, my goodness. I can't even. I, I am not. Yes. So
0: good. <laughs> one of his lines a few pages earlier, He, he when he's ranting and raving on page uh, 16, it's hilarious. It, one of the things he actually says is, sniveling cheese eating little shaggers. So uh, he's, he's mad. He's referring to the French, I guess, at that point. But he used my name, Shagger. So, you know, hey, he gets a, a shout out for me from that.
3: I did not even pick up on that, uh, but amongst everything else of the nonsense he was spouting. And I'm sorry, he says
0: cheese-eared, not cheese-eating. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> A, <laughs> wow. I don't not a, even know what that's supposed to mean. What a crazy character. Oh, my gosh. And then, like, when he's first revealed, you know, as in the costume, they did a beautiful job of his, as he's walking out of the crowd. You can actually see the – this is on page 13. You can see the Union Jack, like, basically across the sky behind him. It's that sort of – you can hear the pomp and circumstance music as he's walking through the crowd. I love it.
3: I know. And that one panel also had me go back and edit my notes because I had previously said that the scene of uh, – uh, Kara super shouting at the crowd, revealed they were 108% composed of men. Yeah. Then you see that there is a very excited lady in that crowd as well.
0: Marshall Rogers spent so much time on that face, it almost makes me think that might be a real person. I uh, know, I had the same thought. Well, there, in Faulty Towers, there was another character on the show who was sort of the voice of reason, who uh, behind the scenes was John Cleese's wife at the time. And I wonder if that's supposed to be her. I'm not sure.
3: Oh, interesting. Yeah, I actually, I'm a big old Anglophile. I've seen every single Doctor Who, aired Doctor Who, I never saw Shada, from the original up through the first season of The Lady Doctor. And I'm only waiting on my girlfriend to catch up so that we can start watching the rest of it together. But I'm a big old Anglophile. I just have not seen Halty Towers, so.
0: It is definitely worth watching. It's on BritBox if you've got BritBox. So it's it's fun. It's fun.
3: Awesome. So I know we were joking about how Beefeater was the character find of the 90s and dominated the decade and all that. But it is true he has actually appeared more than here, which was actually my thought when I went into this. was like, yeah, this is his only appearance. And then, no, turns out he was in 52, that weekly comic event, not only as Booster Gold's pallbearer or one of the six, and the other obscure heroes that were his pallbearers. I don't know. Like, the only one of the six that I heard of besides him was Yellow Perry from the old Superboy comic. Hmm. But yeah, he uh, also appeared later on as like one of the auctioneers, kidnapped victims. And there were several other appearances since then. Like he appeared in the Grant Morrison Batman uh, like epics, like the whole Batman incorporated thing that he's been doing.
0: Of course, Grant Morrison had to dig up the beef eater. <laughs> that's just wild. That, yeah, it's, it's one of those things where people love to look back and uh, just pull a character out that, you know, everyone had forgotten about and just give a nod. And I love that. I think that's wonderful.
3: I know. Right. Oh my goodness. Just, so good he's just the right kind of character to bring up and like kind of have in the background so that as soon as you see him you know him you're like oh my goodness uh, they're referencing the bee like you know you'd almost expect him to be in the background on a justice league united or unlimited episode or whatever
0: right Well, I think another reason they decided to introduce this character is to help set up the upcoming General Glory storyline. Because they, we actually get a panel of a flashback of Beef Eater in the 1940s, meaning Michael's father, fighting side by side with General Glory. So there you've got, you know, the American superhero and the British superhero side by side, you know, as allies during the war. And it helps to remind the reader that they've been talking about this General Glory character off and on for a while in various Andy Helfer books. So you know, the, the coming of General Glory is is definitely in the air.
3: Yeah, I could not remember exactly how and when that was paced out, so I didn't call it out. But I do really appreciate that little Easter egg slash clarion call kind of thing being placed in there. Yeah, And the name of that comic, Tuppany Fun...
0: <laughs> I don't know whether it's tuppany fun or two-penny fun. Like maybe it only costs two pennies. I don't know. I, I looked it up. I didn't see anything out there. Maybe some of our readers from England can shed some light on that one. Uh, our listeners, I should say.
3: Yeah, I've, I've heard it, British things, especially period piece British things, them saying tuppany when they're still talking about two pennies. Like it, mm. it did cost two pennies, And but the, the, kind of like the British Britishism slangness of it, it was tuppany is gotcha. the way I've heard it. And it, that might just be, you know, Hollywood versions of British speak. But it's I've heard British sounding people say that kind of thing in that context before. So that's why I said it. Yeah, you're
0: right, because in this case, you've got American writers really trying to emulate British dialect from a Faulty Towers TV show from 10 years prior. So, I mean, it's a whole mix max of things going on there.
3: Indeed, so I, like I said, linguistically obviously, our uh, Englishman.
0: So I just got two more notes uh, of for myself. I love page twenty-one where uh, it's just a it's a, it's a four-panel shot, uh, three panels that are repeated. It's the first one of the shock and awe from the league where they're all just standing there with their mouth hanging open. And then the third panel, they all lower their gaze and they're angry because they realize you know they're, they're shocked that the embassy is destroyed and now they're angry at Beef Eater and it shows him at the on the bottom. So I love that. It's a great sort of uh, almost a Kevin McGuire style page where it lays out. I enjoy. That that quite a bit that is a great and then uh, this is more of a question really I don't maybe I'm just missing the joke but on the last page we get Blue Jay and Silver Sorceress coming back to the embassy and obviously it's been destroyed and Blue Jay uh, as they realize the embassy's been destroyed he just says I just hope nothing happened to my new black leather jacket and I don't know if there's a joke in there I'm missing but I I just it's got to be a callback to all the trouble Animal Man had with his wardrobe uh, specifically black leather jacket being destroyed by the embassy teleporters in the early just League. Europe issues. I'm guessing with that, that's what it is, unless I'm missing something.
3: Oh, wow. You might very well have something there I didn't get. I just thought it was the, like, almost like the, the comedy was focusing on the minutiae. I guess the joke there would be mashing up the oh, my goodness, we just lost an embassy. I hope my jacket's okay, as opposed to, oh, my goodness, all of our things. Or, like, what about everyone else's thing? No, just, I hope my jacket's okay. Like I, I, That was the, the the funny point I saw. I thought there.
0: I think you're you're probably right. That's probably exactly what it is. It's probably focusing on the absurd in such a, a horrific situation. You're probably right. Uh, all right, so fun comic. Enjoyed it quite a bit. It sounds like you did as well. Yes, so much so. So our, fun. All right, so now it is time for the one punch award this is where we nominate our favorite moment from the issue whether it be fantastic or shocking or dramatic or funny on inspiring whatever uh and both myself and inza will pick one moment and they will be awarded the one punch award so inza you're the guest what is your pick
3: I think my pick might just have to be the way the embassy crumbles. It just, Uh I did not, I mean, to be honest, the way Kellogg was talking before they left the building, I was expecting everyone to have to keep running, but then he just stops and turns around, and then just the localized, beautiful, terrible destruction as it goes through four panels to take up the entire page and just, caves in itself and vanishes into a pit. They have yet another pit in their yard.
0: <laughs> That's a good point. Because the, 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 they did talk earlier in the issue how the pit had to be filled in with sand and now they've lost the entire embassy as it imploded. That's a good point. Uh, my pick is over on page 15 which is just the full, the, that page of all the panels of Beefeater running around back and forth like a, like a rat in a maze being trapped as all the, the, the defenses are attacking him. Uh, I found that hilarious. I, constant, his dialogue too. Where are the blathering ninnies anyway? Who's responsible for this? Quasi-anthropodal midgets. Oh gosh, uh, cloddy-headed muckabouts. I mean, it's just constant hilarious dialogue. So that was my pick. I just thought that was wildly hilarious. Uh, Unfortunately, now we have to decide between the both of us which one is the winner. I think they're both good choices. Uh, Do you wish to defend yours or come to your senses and realize mine's
2: funnier?
3: I mean, yours is definitely funnier. I just felt mine was a little more shocking, so I wasn't quite sure where One Punch was going for there.
2: Hmm.
0: Well, I'm going to stick to my guns for a minute because I've lost these battles a lot lately. And I think if, one, you know, One Punch, in the spirit of that, it used to be, you know, specifically funny. I think the the funny part with the feeder. am I convincing you at all or am I going to have to concede?
3: No, you make a good point. And, you know, I certainly wouldn't want you to feel down or have your feelings hurt. I know that you're very sensitive. <laughs>
0: I really am. I'm such a sensitive soul. Uh, everyone says so. <laughs> All right, we'll tell you what, we're going to give the win to Beefeater then. All right, so we're going to congratulate... Truthfully, Beefeater would win either way, really, because he's responsible for both of the actions. So we're going to say congratulations to Beefeater. You are the winner of the One Punch Award. Wear it with pride. It is as tangible as our love for that moment in the comic. Now, inside, I need to ask a favor. Um, this is the part of the show where I normally make up some ridiculously flimsy excuse asking the guest to hang around the Paris embassy. Unfortunately, there is not a Paris embassy any longer. It's just a hole in the ground. Would you mind hanging around here for a bit and explaining what happened to Silver Sorceress and Blue Jay and Crimson Fox? Because I imagine they're going to be pretty confused and angry when they realize that all their stuff, including the new black leather jacket, has been destroyed.
3: I professionally explain bad news to people in the best way possible, so I can do that with pleasure and pride. <laughs>
0: Well, I appreciate it. And don't worry, Inza, we will bring you back at the end of the show. While Inza's taking care of that for us, folks, I am going to read your listener feedback in a segment called Justice Log. All right, and to start off, I want to mention a review site, Neo Text Review. On that site, there's a fun look back at the JLI. Uh, it's a really entertaining article entitled Sanctioned Buffoonery, Why Justice League International is Still the Comic We Need. Uh, the is written by Chloe Mavelle. I think that's how you say her last name. It's definitely worth checking out. Both JMD Mateus and the JLI podcast recently posted a link on Facebook and Twitter to the article, and you should definitely check it out. It is lots of fun. All right, now be sure to join in on the conversation folks out on our social media use our hashtag fwpodcast or tag us at JLI Podcast. And as I always say, it's about building a community of online JLI fans around the show. And remember when you're posting comments, if you're from outside the United States, let me know and we will assign you the appropriate embassy. All right, so for this one, we're going to be just pulling comments from our website, email, social media, just pulling bits and pieces, as always, because you guys leave so much feedback. We could never possibly cover it all. And we're going to be focusing today on the most recent episode featuring Justice League America, number 43, with Pat Sampson, and Justice League Europe, number 19, with my guest, Jason R. Lady. First up, Gus Casals from our Argentina Embassy. Gus does podcasts such as Alfred Pennyworth Presents and his Legion 60 Years Later podcast. Gus says, I have this whole era of JLA, the 40s, pegged as sub." A par and not really my thing. I usually stop any rereads just when Disparrow is finishing, and yet the podcast reminded me of this quite enjoyable issue. Then Gus goes on to say the character find here is moish. I cannot believe I did not notice the lower body details. I was out looking for queer signals all over the place, yet I missed out on this one. I did see him, or they, in the Pride special, but did not do the math. As for Justly Europe, it's a great case study against padding. The payoff's really good, but it came far too late after the last two issues that were filler, mistakes, and unnecessary stuff. Yeah, Gus, uh, you know, it is hard to look at the Extremist saga issue by issue. As a whole, uh, it's rather enjoyable, but individually, yeah, there's a lot to pick apart and have issues with, as we talked about. They were from Rob McCarthy from the Hell on Wheels webcomic. Rob says, My dad was the way all my failed pitches got in the mail, and that's 283 times just for Marvel. The man was a saint. Oof. Responding to that was Jason Our Lady, our guest from last episode, and author of the young adult humorous fantasy adventure novels Monster Problems and Super Problems. Jason writes, Your dad sounds awesome. So cool he was so supportive. Listening to this podcast and talking to Shag has made me realize how rare it is to have a dad like mine who collected comics with me and enjoyed them as much, if not more, than me. Yeah, Jason, that's really something special and a wonderful memory. Then we heard from Adam Ackerman from our Denmark embassy. Adam says, just a guess, but for Quake Master, I guess the T on his headgear stands for tectonic, such as the tectonic plates whose movement causes earthquakes. And also, as tectonic comes from the Greek word tectonicos, well, I miss that up, folks. Anyway, uh, meaning of a carpenter or builder. Thank you, Adam. Look at you with a knowledge bomb. Alright. They heard from Simple Pending from our UK embassy in the Simple Pending PowerGo blog. Simple Pending writes The JLA issue is a pretty solid and fun issue, looking at things from the villain's point of view. Am I wrong in thinking by now this has already been set up as the norm for the Flash rogues? I'm also disappointed again in Shag missing another waitstaff dressed as Phantom Lady on the Splash page for the Dark Side. Uh, Symbol Penning, no, I uh, most definitely did not miss the Phantom Lady uh, Waitress. However, I am trying to be uh, a little better on the show and not mention things like that quite as often. Uh, then Symbol Penning says, as for the JLE, I'm still in the camp that the two fights should have been closer. The League shouldn't have lost so easily in the first and the Extremist in the second. Though at least you can explain the second fight is something to do with their programming, I guess. As you can guess, I'm squarely in the camp that they stretched out the story a couple of issues too much, which left all the weird little odds and ends that just don't work once you have the whole thing. Uh, Jason Lady responded, With the Justice League Europe versus extremists. it's interesting because in those first two fights, Dream Slayer is the deciding factor. In the Moscow fight, he knocks out the whole GLE with one giant magical blast. In the second fight, he teleports them to Angor. It's of course a trope of the genre that Dream Slayer doesn't simply kill them all because they're the main characters, but it sure seems like Dream Slayer didn't want to kill them for some reason. Then we'll hear from Martin Gray from the Scottish Embassy in the Two Dangers for a Girl blog. Martin writes, Pat's cover description was obviously referencing something. Shag mentioned KFC? Is that a TV ad? <laughs> uh, well, Pat Sampson, of course, was the guest last episode and founder of the Longbox Crusade. Pat chimed in. So to answer your question, Martin, about the cover, uh, I was referencing lyrics from Kenny Rogers' song, The Gambler. And uh, folks, let me tell you, I, Pat did an amazing job with that. I, I'm still laughing at how cleverly he wrote that cover description. Alright, let's get back into uh, Martin Gray's comments. He says, oh, Shag, you you said the villains this time are the kind of characters you would skip over in Who's Who? As if I know you never skipped over anybody. In fact, this is a literal Who's Who of Bad Guys. BlackRock, Black, Black Mass, Brainwave, Calculator, Calendar Man, Cadre, Brainwave, you must see it. Shag even mentions calculator and calendar man sharing a page in Who's Who. Looking at the way so many names are all from one part of the alphabet, would you bet against Keith Giffen having flicked through just a couple of editions to pick this month's guest cast? I, you know, Martin, I mentioned that earlier in the episode, and you and I came to that realization independently, obviously. Yeah, it's who's who played a role, absolutely, in the development of these issues. Then Martin goes on to say there's a fire and water connection to Quakemaster as his first appearance was inked by Tex Blaisdell, former teacher of the network, his very own Rob Kelly. Look at that. That's amazing. Oh, wow, Martin. Good catch. And then Martin says, How fascinating that Moish turned up again. Great spot, Shag. Maybe Shag could ask Jamie Mateus to unlock the mystery of Moish. Uh, in case anyone doesn't know, the Time in a Bottle pub first appeared in the superb Night and Square miniseries by Paul Cornell and Jimmy Broxton, minus Moish. Uh, that's great. Thank you for the history on the pub. I, I didn't realize that. Then we heard from Tim Price from the Outcasters, Batman and the Outsiders podcast, and the Batgirl Huntress podcast. Tim says, J.L.A. number 43 on this reread, Wally Tortellini being blacklisted isn't sitting well with me. He's a reporter doing his job, and Vivian ruins his career. Is that really a heroic move solely to protect the not-so-secret identities, since most of the team have public identities or at least don't really work to protect them? The bigger thing is Wally Tortellini's story is embarrassing to the league, but it's one thing to kill a story, quite another to keep Wally from being able to support himself. just doesn't feel good, you know? You make a great point, Tim. You really do. Then Tim goes on to say, uh, of the characters from the dark side, I knew all of them, first from Who's Who, with one exception, Brainstorm. I first found him in a giant-sized coloring book when I was a kid, featuring Superman, Wonder Woman, and Batman. He must have been a big deal to take on the big three, right? Oh, what did I know? I was eight years old. I remember making his costume purple and green because the heroes were using up all my red and blue crayons. (laughs) I love that. Thank you, Tim. He says, I can't believe Shag didn't note the waitress dressed as Wonder Woman as a redhead. You're slipping, my friend. And she had a great word balloon too. God, now they're letting in normal weirdos. An oxymoron, to be sure, which makes it even better. All right, people, I promise you, I am still the same irredeemable Shag. I have noticed every single sexy, hot woman in these comics, and that hasn't changed. I'm just trying to be a better person and not mouth off about it as much. (laughs) Uh, All right. And Tim says, oh, and obviously Quakemasters T stands for Trevors. You're welcome, Paul Hicks. Uh, then Justice League Europe 19, Tim says, The twist upon twist at the end is were the best parts of the story and rewarding upon rereads. Crimson Fox not being so foxy in the final battle was one clue, but also Dream Slayer was still floating while the other villains were bowing to Mitch. So a little clue there as to what's to come. Then we heard from Liz Ann Oswald, who has her own YouTube channel. Liz says, the cover looks pretty cool, but that is the weirdest-looking helmet I have ever seen. Liz is talking, of course, about uh, Brainstorm's helmet. Liz says, it looks like the bishop piece from Chess with circles around it. Still, it's (laughs) well-drawn. You make a great point, Liz. It certainly does. And then Liz says, it's kind of fun to see Wally West and Catherine Colbert at the museum at the end of Just Like Europe. Kind of shocked, though, that she didn't go with Captain Adam. You know, Jason Lady chimes in and says, I agree. If there had been an epilogue with Catherine at the museum, it should have been with Captain Adam. It really does seem random to have Wally there. Great observations, folks. Uh, then Captain Entropy chimes in and says, Pat Sampson, a.k.a. DJ Christados. It's so great to hear your Longbox Crusade wackiness here on the Firewater Podcast Network. It's like a Marvel-DC crossover, or when your favorite people from two different parts of your life meet. I mean, I know you've known each other for a long time, and I had nothing to do with your introduction, but people are always telling me to stop letting facts get in the way of their point. So now I will say the same. <laughs> Thank you, Captain Entropy, for introducing me to my friend of several years. Then Captain Entropy continues, says, Jason, I have mad respect for your dad spending 33 years in the U.S. Army, especially wearing a name tag that says Lady. Honestly, each of his years should have counted du- double. <laughs> Then uh, Captain Entropy says, There's a lot of mutual support in this podcast community. I've legitimately found other podcasts that bring me joy because Fire & Water does great service as a gateway drug. I'm glad Fire & Water uses opportunities to call attention to the work of you and others doing and producing great free content for our enjoyment. Aww. It's very nice of you to say, Captain Entropy. And yes, I have always wanted our network to basically help support the community. That's what it is to me. It's all about building a giant community of friends, and a lot of these people have legitimately become my friends friends i spent a lot of time with these people whether it be online or in person and uh it just it feels wonderful to support each other and we get a lot of support back from them and we sincerely appreciate it then chris lister writes in saying i was wondering if dc should bring back jean jean dijon he could team up with abdul abdullah abdul (laughs) together they could be the big bads for the next big crossover event what do you think Well, Chris, besides being horrifying stereotypes, uh, they are some amazing supporting characters from various Justice League International books, and I would love to see that. Uh, Michael Kramer wrote in, he says, About Justice League America, I've always wished they'd revisit the dark side bar in DC comic specials over the years. On the other hand, we'll get a variation on the idea over in Justice League Unlimited in the episode Flash and Substance. All right, good point. Then Just Like Europe, Michael says, so the bad guys take over the world and sit around bored? Wait, I've seen that movie before. Superman 2. Then he says, as to the extremist robots being put right on display in a museum, the DCU museums all have this really bad habit of putting dangerous items on display. Hello, Flash Museum, looking at you and your rogue weapons and cosmic treadmill right out in the middle of the floor. (laughs) Thank you, Michael. Then we'll hear from Mike Dynas from the Pacific Canadian Embassy. And regarding Just Like America, Mike says, Because of Who's Who, I've always had it in my head that Calendar Man and Calculator were a duo. So it was great to see them chatting it up in this issue. I love everything about this issue and all the morts gathered in one place. There's nothing else in the stands like this at the time. It was the main reason this was my favorite comic. Regarding Just Like Europe, because the storyline had less and less jokes, I was starting to tune out the JLE at the time. Good thing next issue has Beefeater. <laughs> then Josh Romano wrote in to say, The biggest surprise for me with this podcast has been how much it has made me reassess Justice League Europe. I wasn't thrilled with the JLE for the most part when it came out, but the recaps made me pull those books from the law boxes and give them another look. Then Josh mentions because I pulled out the hard copies because they're not on DC Infinite for some reason. It says, New Guardians being put on DC Universe Infinite and not the rest of Justice League Europe? Uh, Josh, actually, that is directly related to the scripter of these Justice League Europe issues. Uh, If you go back to episode 38 of this show and listen to the first five minutes, it might become a little more clear why those are not on DC Infinite. Then we heard from a, a new friend, John Kush. He goes, I'm an original JLI reader. He points out that he just turned 52 years old. Happy birthday. Goes on to say, I'm on episode four of the podcast. Long way to go, but I listened to the first four in two days. I love this. By the way, rereading through the latest Omnibus. That's awesome, John. Welcome to the family and the community. And if you're only on episode four, then I guess we'll catch up with you in about 10 years. <laughs> then we heard from the real Booster Gold on Twitter. Uh, the handle is Booster Gold Vivo. They write, not only have I been big the JLI podcast, but I've also cosplayed this past weekend with my lovely fiance. We've been talking about the JLI nonstop this week, thinking about starting a pod for the Blue and Gold. What can I say? I've been inspired. Yeah, so this person podcasted as Booster Gold with their fiance as Blue Beetle, and it's absolutely fantastic. They even posted a picture of themselves with past guests of the show, Luke Dobb. How cool is that? Then from Jeremy Patrick from our Australian embassy. Jeremy says, usually living overseas is bad for comic fans. Everything's more expensive and there's less to choose from. Once in a while, though, you get the opportunity to buy some cool variants. Uh, he shared some pictures with me of these card cover JLI sets from Eagle Moss, he says these are really neat as each features an original preface and a classic reprint at the back linked thematically to the main collected story. Oh. Yeah, I shared pictures of uh, for the Eagle Moss collections of Justice League International Part 1, Justice League International Part 2, and the Booster Gold collection called Blue and Gold. Oh, they're absolutely beautiful, Jeremy, and I am super jealous. Finally, we heard from some schlub named Chris Franklin. Uh, apparently, he's part of the Fire and Water podcast now working does shows such as JLUcast and Starman Chronicles with his wife. I don't know who this guy is, but I suspect his wife is infinitely cooler than him. Uh, Chris writes in and goes, Moish. Hmm. I hate to say this, but I think the whole bit with him is that you see him up top in panel one as gruff, sort of a low-level supervillain type, even bold enough to rip off Superman's brand. But then in panel two, he has on the skirt and fishnets. I think that was the gag. It was the 90s, and cross-dressing was fair game for comedy back then. At least he wasn't treated unfairly by the characters because of this, but I do think this may have been intended as a joke for the readers at the time to pick up on. Obviously, this didn't age well, but it looks like something positive has been done with him now. Good on DC for bringing him back in a completely positive light. You know, Chris, you make a really good point. That's something I didn't even think about, and uh, I'm afraid you might be right. But yes, I'm glad DC has done some good work with Morse lately. Then Chris goes on to say the extremist storyline, oh boy. Yeah, the stakes were just too high in this one for a non-crossover event. And then the ending was clever, but kind of underwhelming. When you escalate a threat to a level like that, you have to assume the other characters are going to do something. Showing them sitting on their hands is actually worse than not showing them at all. Yeah, Chris, you're absolutely right on that one. Then some thanks go out to a couple other folks to send us some nice comments like Phil Ryan, Hoover Jeremiah, and Warlock Thanos Podcast. Now, this is the part of the show where we thank all of you for sharing the show on your social media timeline on Facebook or Twitter. Uh, I say this every month, guys, but I know it's a long list of names. It sounds like a phone book. I get it with really weird names. <laughs> However, these folks showed their support and promoted the show. So it's important to me that we recognize these individuals every month. So this time out, we've got over 80 names. Wow. Thank you, everybody. This is a list of everyone who helped promote the show in the last couple episodes by either sharing on facebook or retweeting on twitter so our thanks go out to aaron head moss and his gi joe a real american headcast al girding andre tfg between the pages blog billy delicious canadian geek Captain Freakout psychedelic radio, Chris Franklin, Chris Lewis, Chris Leiden, Coffee and Comics and his Days of High Adventure podcast, Damian Droud whiter Dave's Comic Heroes blog, Derek William Crab, Dr. Ange, Dr. Jennifer Schwartz Levine, Ed Moore, Frederico Hernandez, Geek to Me Radio, Generation X Wing podcast, Gus Casals, Into the Weird, Jake Muir, Jason R Lady, Jeff Poirier, Jeffrey Brown, John Coos, John Wilson Justin Steiner, Kichi Baker, Lizanne Oswald, Mark Baker Wright, Martin Gray in his Two Dangers for a Girl blog, Martin Kogan, Matt Anderson, Matt Ev, Matthew Cody, Max Traver, Maz at Mazinger 1978 and in his homework the podcast, Michael Atchison, Michael Kramer, Michael Thomas, Mick Jamison, Mike Dynas, Mike Jamison, Mike Salt, Olavo Lima, Pat Sampson is Christatis Account and Longbox Crusade. Paul Keehan, Pragmatic Gollum. Prairie Justice, a Greg Saunders vigilante podcast. Pulp Fiction Comics, Culver City. Randy S. at the Fist of Shaka Khan Shu Rob Kelly in his Digest Cast, Mountain Comics, Treasury Comics, and For All Mankind Super Friends podcast. Roger Preeb, Rolled Spine Podcast. Sean Ross in his Secret Wars and Beyond podcast. Siskoid, Smut and Guts. Superman Radio Revisited Podcast, Symbol Pending, Ted Kilvington, and Justice Trek, Tim Price, and Outcasters Batman and the Outsiders Podcast, Trent Lewis, Warlock Thanos Podcast, Will Hughes, Willie Yarbrough, and Zek Cap Boots. Woof! my thanks to all of you for your support of the JLI podcast. Your feedback, as always, y'all. You are such an important, important, important part of the show. And the community of JLI fans we built together is absolutely amazing. Now, if I've forgotten anyone, I am terribly sorry. It's probably the fault of Pat Sampson or Jason Lady. Just let me know and I'll be sure to include you in the next episode. Now, please keep those cards and letters coming, everyone, and visit our website, which is firewaterpodcast.com slash JLI. That's where most of the, the action's going on, so leave your comments in the show post there. You can visit us on Facebook as Justice League International Blah ha ha podcast on Podcast. As JLI Podcast or email us at jlipodcast at gmail.com. My thanks again to Pat Sampson and Jason R. Lady for appearing on the most recent episode of the show, and thanks to you listeners for such a wonderful collection of feedback. Now we're going to take a quick podcast promo break, and when we come back, we'll see if we can bring Cindy and Inza together in the same embassy. everybody, Clinton Robison here. I recently attempted to sneak into the Longbox Crusade headquarters basement to watch some of the
2: Albrecht Brothers action movies while the crew was out at the Saturday matinee theater. Too bad I had a little mishap
0: and got stuck down here. With no movies to boot! However, there are pieces of Pat's old podcasting equipment and excellent Wi-Fi service. So I decided to pass the time watching online fan films and talking about them. What, you don't know what a fan film is? Well, there are these non-theatrical movies that people post online of already established characters and settings. Hey, hey, hey now. Just wait and see. Save all judgment for what happens when you listen to Fan Film Fridays. A new podcast found on the Longbox Crusade podcast feed.
2: Greetings guys and ghouls, I'm the Invisible Dan Cologne, and this is The Monsters That Made Us. Join Monster Mike Manzi and I on the last Friday of every month as we celebrate all of the spooktacular characters and films in the Universal Studios Classic Monster series. From the Phantom of the Opera to the Creature Walks Among Us, we sink our teeth into all the gory details as we dissect the films that gave us some of the most iconic movie monsters of all time. The Monsters That Made Us is brought to you by the Cage
0: Club Podcast Network. For more information, head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. All right, folks, we're back from break. And yes, it does appear the JLI Teleporter has brought both Cindy and Inza together for us. Now, Cindy, this has been an absolute joy. Thank you so much for being here. Again, an opportunity to record without that pesky husband of yours. That was a blast. I really enjoyed the opportunity. Now, (laughs) why don't you tell the folks at home where they can find you on the interwebs?
1: All righty. So we are a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. We do the JLU podcast. Christopher does. And I'm sorry, I always call him Christopher. Nobody else does. That's me and his mother and his mother is you know no longer with us unfortunately I'm the only one that's allowed to call him Christopher just putting that out there his name's Chris but anyway <laughs> put that on there. it's mine
2: um but anyway <laughs>
1: Um, we have the JLU podcast. We do the Supermates podcast. We have just recorded a show that's been pushed out for uh, Starman with Starman Chronicles. He does uh, Superman, the movie minute with Rob Kelly. There's all, you can find us all kinds of places. I'm hoping that you will of course look at the fire and water podcast network and do all our wonderful shows. Lots of wonderful things that if there's not something on there that you can find for your interest and you're not looking very well.
0: <laughs> that is a pretty accurate. and, and- Everything that Chris and Cindy produced together is absolutely enjoyable, entertaining, charming. It's the whole gamut, folks. It's an absolute blast. Well, yeah. (laughs) Thank you so much for being here, Cindy. I really appreciate it.
1: Well, thank you for having me, and I look forward to the next time.
0: Now, Inza, I really appreciate you being on the show. It has been an absolute joy chatting. Why don't you tell the listeners where they can find you on the interwebs?
3: Well, currently, my internet presence is relatively light, but I'm hoping to change that in the new year. I'm on both Twitter and Instagram with the handle at the 108th Sage using underscores before and after the 108th. My Instagram is 108% just my art, and it has been sadly neglected recently. And Twitter is pretty much just me retweeting things when I actually remember to log in either of them will let you dm me and once i get around to putting more of my creative output online or we get ready to actually selling battle quest one day we hope i'll put that link in my bio on both sites as well
0: and, and folks, in the show notes, of course, you can find links uh, to uh, the 108 Sage Twitter and Instagram accounts. So those will be there for you. So you can just click right on them.
3: Oh, wow. Thanks. I appreciate that. Of
0: course. And again, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. This
3: has been so much fun. And I got to say, Shag, this has been a dream come true. You mentioning the Who's Who podcast during your guest appearances on season zero of the Flash podcast. It was the precipitating incident that got me into comic book podcasts, which has become 90% of what I listen to these days.
0: That blows my mind. I, I, get, I, I love doing those flash podcasts with Andy as guests talking about Firestorm, and I cannot believe that that led you to all of this. So I, that's wonderful. What, how, how great that people find each other in such the strangest ways. And by the way, if you say being on the show uh, has been a dream come true, I got to say, Inza, dream bigger. I mean, come on. It's just a silly show.
3: <laughs> lots of dreams. I don't mind how many of them come true.
0: <laughs> well, thank you again for being on the show. I appreciate it.
3: Thank you for inviting me, and I so appreciate it as well.
0: Absolutely. And folks, that is going to do it. Now, come back next episode when we cover Justice League America, number 45, and Justice League Europe, number 21. And we'll have two more guest hosts to help me cover the issues. Who will they be? Come on, people. We've been doing this for six years. You know how this works. You're going to have to wait and find out next episode. Thanks for listening, everybody. Until next time, I'm Shag.
3: And I'm Cindy. And I'm Enzo Morganstar, the 108th Sage.
0: And you've been listening to the JLI Podcast. Want to make make something out of it? it?